0: With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise
1: where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is
0: telling you that something wrong is something right, even if the whole world is telling you to
2: move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say, no,
3: you move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440.
0: Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Well, we certainly do welcome all of you to the program. We are glad that you are here, and any time that you can give us, we are always appreciative of that. If you do want to help us defeat the Dark Cyber Overlords at YouTube, what you need to do is either like us, subscribe, like the Facebook page, however you want to do that. Whatever medium you happen to be watching us on, just let the Dark Cyber Overlords let us know that you love us and, you know, it kind of screws with their heads, which is the reason that I like it. But, uh, Rough Night. Rough night. And it was a rough day yesterday, and, and the story that I'm going to bring forward is, is going to put that into better light. We are going to get to some more lighthearted things. We're going to get to, for example, an interview with Jeremy Smith a little bit later. He's the sports director, or sorry, the sports information director here at Fulton University. We're going to talk to him about the All Star game and Major League Baseball and how all that came about. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit later about Joe Biden and his gun control measures. We're going to talk about Senator Raphael Warnock. Uh, But first, we're going to talk about something that I was just absolutely incredibly disappointed to hear. And that is, of course, that the Secretary of State, John Merrill of the state of Alabama, that he has admitted to having an extramarital affair. And he had it with this uh, woman that he's known for some time. She's a little bit younger than him. I believe her age was 44. But uh, it is just incredibly disappointing to hear. And primarily that is because John, as you guys have known, if you've seen the show for any length of time, if you've been following me, John has been on the show probably as often as anybody that I'm aware of. Secretary Merrill has probably had more guest appearances than just about anyone. The only person that would supersede him would, I, I think, probably be Becky Gerritsen, and that's because she used to have a regular segment on my show. Uh, so she's definitely got the market cornered for the most appearances, but my point in all of that is to point out that John is a personal friend, somebody that I like. I was blindsided by this. I had no idea, nothing, n- nothing that indicated to me that this was coming forward, but the facts are the facts. And not only did the evidence come out that fairly fairly conclusively proves in his own voice that he was engaged in this, but then he came out and admitted it yesterday. Uh, Now, this comes after denying it in an interview with AL.com just a few days earlier. So not only was John Merrill hiding this and covering it up from the people of the state of Alabama, not only that, but on top of that... It turns out he was lying about it, too. He, he straight up was asked the question. He denied it, said that it, it did not occur, that the woman that was claiming that he had had an affair with her was lying and harassing him. And then the, the tape comes out, the audio, I should say, the tape, um, <laughs> kind of an old-timey saying, but the audio of a phone conversation between them came out, and we heard directly from John's mouth that he had engaged in this that he had had an extramarital affair actually um, al.com put this out so we'll just go ahead and listen to it this is john Merrill in a, a phone conversation with his now confirmed mistress uh, at the time
2: so the last time that we had sex that's the last time ever
3: good day.
2: That's the last time ever?
3: It's supposed to be the last time ever.
2: Is it the last time ever?
3: It should be the last time ever.
2: I don't want it to be the last time ever. I know that. Do you want it to be? Why?
3: I've already told you that. We've talked about that every time we talk today.
2: Oh, God. But you know it's not going to be.
0: (sighs) All right. So that's it in John Merrill's voice. You heard him admit to it when she's asking him about, you know, if this is going to be the last time they've ever had, they're ever going to have sex again. And he says, uh Yeah, it's it's going to be the last time, which, I mean, that that's an admission to the fact that they've done that before. And so I, I, it doesn't get any more clearer than that. This is something that was going on. John Merrill's confirmed it. The tape is there. And what's really telling about that, and I think that somewhere deep down, John knows that this is wrong and, and knows not just because of the politics of it, that this was a bad idea from a moral standpoint. I, I genuinely want to give people the benefit of the doubt on stuff like that, and in John's case, I, I think that that was probably genuine. And in the last part of that clip, she actually says, you've done this to me I don't know how many times. You keep saying that that was the last time, and then we wind up doing it again. So I think probably the entire time that this happened, that Secretary Merrill is struggling with this. This is something that he knows is wrong. He knows he shouldn't be doing it. He... But but he waffles. You hear there when uh, she says, is it the last time ever? He responds, yes. He said, after what? Well, it should be the last time ever. And he's right on that, sure, but it it sounds like he's wavering there. He's like, well, it ought to be. I don't know if it's going to be or not. And there's a couple of takeaways from that. First of all, If somebody is willing to sleep with somebody that they know is married, that is not a person that you should trust. John Merrill trusted the discretion of this person and for her not to go to the media and tell them that she's sleeping with the Alabama Secretary of State, but if somebody is willing to sleep with somebody that is married, then that's not a person that is trustworthy. Now, you should never have an affair with anybody, period, for any reason. I'm just saying that this is an indication that there is a, an absolute moral evil here that a person that is willing to sleep with somebody that is married to another person is somebody that is also going to be willing to tell other people about it. That's how this works. And I'm not saying that to I- excuse Meryl or uh, what I'm saying is to any of you out there that might be listening, keep that in mind because error begets error evil tends to lead to more evil. And this is something that goes all the way back to David when he had his affair. Your sins will find you out. And it's one of the reasons that I tell people, both politician and private citizen, tell people your mistakes. Confess your sins one to another. Because it is kind of a superpower, weird enough. If it's out there in the public, it can't come out later. And if you're up front with people... And tell them what has done, what the skeletons in your closet are. You can't be blackmailed because there's no dirt that people don't know about to dig up on you. And in Merrill's case, I think that based on, on that phone call, and I think it is sincere, there's a part of him that knows he shouldn't do this, and there's a part of him that wants to continue to do this. And it's sad and unfortunate, but that's human nature. And I'm not excusing it. I'm not saying that. I mean, there's no question in my mind. Merrill shouldn't have done this. And this is on him. This is not just like he was a, a slave to his whims or his desires. No, John Merrill made a decision and it was the wrong one. And I hate that because I like John Merrill so much. There are very few politicians that I like. I mean, the list is short. We're talking like 30 at max. And I doubt I could come up with 30 politicians that I legitimately like and respect. And John Merrill was one of them. But the facts are the facts. And he was lying to the people of Alabama. He was lying to all of his constituents. He has broken the public trust. And not only that, this was going on not only without the, with the, Alabama, the people of Alabama not knowing about it, but he also did so During his tenure as the secretary of state, which makes it even worse. Like as far as we'll we'll go, for example, to Donald Trump, Donald Trump is not somebody that has uh, had a lot of marital fidelity, but all of that stuff was a, or at least most of it. We think the general idea that he was a cat and, and, you know, had slept around on his previous wives, a, a good deal. One that was known in the public sphere. People knew that when they voted for him. And two, so far as we know, he didn't do any of that while he was in the White House. Now, maybe he did and that'll come out later. But so far as we know, in his tenure as president, and I'm not you know, morally equating the two, I'm just saying that there is a difference when it comes to holding office. And John Merrill has done this while he was in office, lied to the people of Alabama about it. And that was not something that we suspected of him when he went into office, same thing for Governor Bentley, when we found out that he was uh, sleeping with Rebecca Caldwell Mason. When that happened, that wasn't something people expected because he, like John Merrill and, and most Alabama politicians, build themselves as this squeaky clean conservative Christian that would never do anything like that and has strong family values. That's part of their platform. And so the fact that that is now gone and that image is not there, that has an effect, and that's part of the reason that since basically he has changed who he was and he has gotten to where he is because he portrayed himself in that light and now he hasn't, I think that it is appropriate for John Merrill to resign because he was selling himself to the voters of Alabama as one thing. Turns out he's something completely different. And because of that, that changes the dynamics. It alters it. And now that that is gone, I think that the people of Alabama should not have that person as the Secretary of State, even though I genuinely like Merrill and think he did a bang-up job as the Secretary of State. I, I mean, I think that that's appropriate. Um, but along those same lines, and I do think that he should resign, I think that that would be appropriate, and, and frankly, I think that that's probably coming. I, I would not be at all surprised to find out tomorrow that that is something that has been done. Uh, but I do think that it's important to bring this up, that he did announce the other day, and this comes via AL.com, that he would not be seeking election in the Senate, and there were a lot of people that were speculating he'd make a Senate run. And we know now that he is not going to. He announced this just the other day. So you can see here from AL.com, I will obviously not be a candidate for the United States Senate nor will I be seeking any other elected position in 2022. Because I think it's important to me to make sure that I become the man that I have been before, and that I am working to put myself in the position to be the leader that I have been before, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, and as an elected official, Merrill said. So, He's not going to be seeking re, or he's not going to be seeking reelection, which he couldn't have done that as a Secretary of State anyway. His term was going to expire, but he's not going to be seeking any other office. I, I suspected he would either go for this, the open Senate seat now that Shelby announced he was going to retire, or that he was going to, you know, potentially run for something like lieutenant governor or governor, and, and probably would have won it. He was a very popular, well-respected person in the Republican Party. Here's another thing to consider, too, and I, I don't exactly know the time, and I think we're still trying to piece all of this together, we don't really have an, enough information to know this. Is that why he dropped out of the race for the Senate? Because he's, he had a viable shot at the Senate seat that is now occupied by Tommy Tuberville. He had a decent shot. I know it was a crowded Republican field, but he really could have... Done well in that race if he had stayed into it. And we all assumed that because it was a crowded field, because it was going to be incredibly expensive, that that's the reason John Merrill backed out. Was this going on then? And was that part of the reason he decided it was better for him not to get involved? Because especially once you've won the primary, and I don't know if he would have won the primary or not, but especially if you've won the primary, but even just being a contender for a primary in a U.S. Senate seat everything about your life suddenly goes under a microscope. And that is true for a statewide constitutional office like Secretary of State as well, but even more so because the stakes are even higher. I mean, we saw the lengths that the Democrats were willing to go to in the state of Georgia and wound up picking up two Democrat seats. And the same thing would have been true, especially for Merrill running against Doug Jones, a Democrat senator in a red state. The Democrats would have done everything to uncover every stone, And maybe that's part of the reason that Merrill decided, probably better to cut my losses. I don't know that. I don't have any special insight. That is pure speculation on my part, and I want everybody to understand that. But I'm saying that is something that I at least think is a possibility. It is the right call for John Merrill to not seek re-election for the same reasons that I said, but more importantly than the, the political reasons, because of course this is a show about politics, and we're going to talk about that. But it's also a show about morality. And based on that statement, I think that Merrill is taking the right approach. Like I said, when, when you run for office like that, when you are in an elected office, your entire life is under a microscope all the time. And that is a terrible thing to have to go through, but it's especially bad when you're going through something like this. I mean, I don't know if John Merrill can save his marriage after this. I don't know what his relationship to his kids is going to be like this, but I can pretty much guarantee... Whatever chance that he has at salvaging that is significantly lessened by continuing to remain in public office and in the public eye. If John Merrill were sitting here across in the studio with me doing an interview right now, I would say to him, and I I hope that he's listening. I don't know if he is or not, but I, I genuinely hope he's watching this podcast, and he very well may be. I would say, Mr. Secretary, I do think that you should resign on, on the reasons that I've already given, but I also think that you should resign and abstain from running for public office at least for a while, at least for a few years, to get your house in order. And I say that genuinely wanting you to be able to save your marriage and the relationship with your kids. I think it would be best for them. And you'll remember that I said a similar thing to Governor Bentley, a politician that I like significantly less than John Merrill. A few years ago when we found out that he was sleeping with with somebody else it's darn near impossible to mend that bridge and it's made even more impossible by holding a public office and so i would not be at all surprised if secretary merrill announced his resigning from office i believe the way that that works is that governor k ivy would either appoint somebody or call for a special election he does have until 2022 till his term expires so we're sitting on, you know, at least another year and a half-ish. So I could see a special election being in order. That would not be something that is a surprise to me. But I am a little bit concerned that it seems as though John Merrill only admitted to his wrongdoing after he knew that they had the goods on him and they had the evidence. And then it was time for him to jump in. Secretary Merrill, even if nobody ever found out about this, you should have left for office, even if you gave no explanation, just to fix this with your family. And and I say that as a bachelor with no kids, I'm not an expert on this kind of stuff, but even I, with as little experience as I have, understand that that, that is a Herculean task just for a normal person. You throw politics and the hot spotlight of that into this, and your chances are slim to none. So as little as my advice may count on that, that that would be what I would say to the Secretary of State this hour so pray for him I, I genuinely wish him the best I, I genuinely want his family to stay together and I, I hate that this is the situation we find ourselves in But but this is where we are and we have to deal with it we have to deal with the situation as it is not as we wish it would be And I will also say this too, I am incredibly disappointed. However, I'm not crushed. My soul is not dead. I'm not, you know, absolutely distraught, even though John Merrill is one of very few politicians that I like. And the reason for that is, and this is advice I would give to anybody else out there that is probably pretty upset that somebody like John Merrill that they also genuinely liked was was a strong constitutional conservative, and, and I assume still is. For those of you out there that are disappointed about the, the political implications of this, and even though I, I know Mo Brooks is not happy about this, at the same time, he's going to be the beneficiary of this. I mean, Mo Brooks just took a commanding lead in the Senate race by this happening. Um, I, you know, I, I'm sure Mo Brooks didn't want this to happen, but he is going to be the beneficiary of it just accidentally. But there are all those political considerations and the fallout of this is going to be something that we're looking at. But ultimately, you don't put your faith in politicians no matter who they are. A lot of people make a mistake of the the newest politician, the, the politician that they like the best or that has the dynamic speeches, they, they put them up on pedestals almost like idols. And this happens on the right, it happens on the left, I'd say it happens more on the left, but it happens a good bit on the right as well. We looked at these people to save us. These people are not saviors. They are not smarter than everybody else. They are not more moral than everybody else. Usually that is the opposite, even though I thought John Merrill was one of the ones that was typically a, you know, more moral than everybody else. It turned out not to be. But my point is this is why you don't put people on pedestals, because putting people on pedestals just gives them farther to fall. I mean, I, I, I'm genuinely upset that this happened to John Merrill, that he is doing this and is putting his family through this, but it's not the end of my world. I mean, ultimately, the guy was a politician, and I hate that we've lost a really important conservative voice in the state of Alabama, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really do anything to affect my beliefs or my ideas or, or any of those things. I, I'm not like... I don't have an idol shattered on the ground, and I don't know what to do with my life now. And, and there are people that are so involved in politics and trust so much in these politicians that this is their reaction to those things. Or even worse, they basically assume that they can do no wrong and defend their actions no matter what they do. And that's not healthy either. So all I'm saying to everybody else out there that is probably feeling the way that I'm feeling, which is pretty upset and and kind of taken aback not seeing that this thing came out of left field for me i I would have never expected this if you had asked me about all of the politicians in the state of alabama that would be involved in some kind of affair scandal john merrill would have been if not at the bottom of that list not not real far from it i mean there are very few people that i trusted more than john merrill and that that's just not there anymore so Don't put people on pedestals. These people are human beings just like you. They make mistakes. They do stupid things. And in John Merrill's case, he did something that was incredibly immoral and and not right for him, not right for his family, and not right before his God, and he'll answer for that one day. He can still be forgiven. Uh, The the blood of Christ can take away this sin as well. I, I don't know what the worldly repercussions for this will be, but that is a possibility. He can still do that, and I imagine that he will ask for forgiveness. But ultimately the thing that we have to remember is that politi- don't look to the politicians to save you. Don't look at them with a, a great deal of admiration because at the end of the day, they're just your employees. They work for you. You elected them, you put them there, your tax dollars pay their salary. They're just employees, that's all they are. And when you look at them that way, when a really good win does something that disappoints you, yeah, you're disappointed, but, but life goes on. It's not the end of the world. There will be other good constitutional conservatives that will be able to take up the fight. John Merrill was a great one, but the fact that he's not really going to be able to fulfill that role anymore, that's okay. There will be others. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to go to that interview with Jeremy Smith on Major League Baseball's decision to move the All-Star game, and we'll discuss a little bit more on that when we come back from this break on tactics.
2: Speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Caulquit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio.
0: And welcome back to the program, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and most importantly, disagreement is not hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program. If you like the program, be sure to like and subscribe and help us out to fight the dark cyber overlords at YouTube. And uh, up next, we have a very special guest, first time on the show. And frankly, I'm kind of surprised that I've never had him on the show before. It's a buddy of mine that works with me here at Faulkner, the sports information director for Faulkner University, Jeremy Smith. Welcome to the program, Jeremy.
1: Hey, brother. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, always a pleasure to, to get to talk politics with you. We mm-hmm. do that an awful lot in our spare time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, But, of course, the reason that I brought you on being a sports guy and everything is I got to talk to you about Major League Baseball and what the heck is going on with the All-Star game because I know football is king in Alabama. I get it. You like Mm -hmm. your football, and I do too. I'm Mm -hmm. an Auburn grad, but I'm a baseball guy and always Mm -hmm. have been. That'll always be my number one sport. And I've been a Braves fan since when I was four years old, before I was even in kindergarten, I could name the Braves starting lineup. Crime Dog and everybody. so like. When I found out they're taking the All-Star game away from Braves, and I, I feel like there's a lot of people in central Alabama that feel that way. There's not another big uh, Major League Baseball team anywhere near here, and right. so this is Braves country. So how do you think this affects the, uh, the local baseball fans? Well, in
1: the immediate, it starts with those people who were going to try to make the trip, who were going to try to go to Atlanta, who wanted to go to the Home Run Derby. Or, and you can't even quantify the amount of just walk-up traffic Mm -hmm. People who wouldn't even have tickets, but they would have hung out in the battery. They would have hung out in the area and what they would have done just to be near it and be part of it. My son Mm -hmm. and I talked um, as far back as three years ago when when the announcement was made that Atlanta's getting the All-Star Game. We marked it down, my wife and I did, that we want to take our... Our son, who's now eight, and he's been excited. He knows as he tracks everything related to baseball. Right. And so he knew for the last year and a half, hey, the Braves are going to get the All-Star game. And he would bring it up. Hey, uh, are we going to go to the Home Run Derby? Yeah. And we were going to try. Well, not now. Uh, and so, I know. All the stuff surrounding the All-Star game, for, if
0: you're not a baseball fan, you don't realize it. Because, I mean, the Pro Bowl, nobody cares about the Pro no. Bowl. Nobody watches the All-Star game for the NBA. No. It's like Disney World for a baseball fan. Yeah, it's Like huge. that and Cooperstown are right. the two big things. Right,
1: and that's one of those, you know, you can go to a game in every major league stadium eventually because mm-hmm. there's, there's 81 home games a year per team. Right. There's a lot of options. There's one all-star game a year. You're not going to get a lot of options to go to those. And when you look at the cycle on, on how long it takes, Maybe Rob Manfred does the right thing. It'd be the first time, but maybe Rob Manfred does <laughs> right. the right thing. And he comes back in a couple of years when all of this dies down and he gives it back to Atlanta and, and we cycle back into it in a few years. But th- there's no guarantee of that. And uh, I, I think the just,
0: chances of that are very slim, frankly.
1: Right. Um, it, uh, they're, they're probably higher if Rob Manfred's not commissioner anymore, which would be the best thing baseball could do for itself. Absolutely. Oh, uh, It's the worst worst commissioner in North American professional sports.
0: Yeah, to take a break from the politics for just a second and uh-huh. just talk sports, I do not understand a baseball commissioner whose big, like, you know, his his legacy to the sport is supposed to be, let's figure out a way to give people less of our product. I like baseball. I want it to last longer. If they made it 12 innings, I would watch all 12
1: innings of it. So you're telling me Rob Manfred is the Joe Biden of Major League Baseball. Like, (laughs) he hates the very thing he's been elected to take care of. That's
0: that's actually a darn good uh, analogy. Right. In fact, uh, he just appointed a guy today who's like a rabid gun control nut. Mm -hmm. Uh, to put in charge of the ATF, uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. So it's kind of the same thing. Well, and he makes
1: the statement that, you know, America is an an international embarrassment. Like, what would Rob Manfred say about his own sport, you know? Uh, and you've yeah, seen I don't, these things, I don't get that. right? You've seen him throughout. You know, Mike Trout. The, the, you go back to the Mike Trout thing a few years ago, right. and he was asked about Mike Trout and not being this household name and this big star, even though he could be the best player to ever play the game by some metrics. Yeah, and and I agree. Rob Manfred's answer is that like Mike Trout doesn't want to promote himself. That's not his job. And so Manfred has no interest in doing his own job, which is promoting. And then the most recent thing, we'll skip all over the Astros thing, the inflatable (laughs) trash cans. But but the the thing that gets me is we went into the offseason with both the owners and the Players Association. Reportedly, both of them wanted the DH in the National League and yet didn't agree to get the DH in the national league because Rob Manfred is so dysfunctional as a leader that he can't even come to an agreement about two things that people have already agreed on. So, it's just it's really it's you really read frustrating. The deal. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. Uh, highly but, frustrating.
0: But yeah, getting back into the politics, of course, sure, the, yeah. the rationale behind this and um, this is one of the reasons that I like talking to you, and I I'm, I hate that I don't have the clip, but there's been uh, clips of people on uh, ESPN sportscasters talking about the politics that get literally everything wrong right. about the politics. Uh, I was watching, and I cannot remember the guy's name, but the commentator the other night that went on this like five-minute rant about how evil and racist the Georgia law is, and – <sighs> First of all, he got all of his facts wrong. Right. Um, well, because facts don't matter. Well, and, and he's so. probably getting all of this from uh, you know a handful of Twitter uh, people that he follows, and he thinks because he reads some some tweets from a couple politicians, he's well informed. Right. Um, but you know, most sports guys, and I, I'm not you know, I'm not going after him because I couldn't. I'm a politics guy. I couldn't just do talk sport. You know, talk sports for uh, ever. Right. I, I, could, I couldn't do that. I, I don't have that skill set. But but they think that they have it with their – but you actually know the politics of this stuff, and yep. that's one of the reasons I, I ask you to come on here. And one of the things that, that he said and that has been repeated over and over and over again is how uh, obstructive and uh, how, it's, how the law is specifically designed to keep black people and other minorities from voting. So w- w- what's your take on that? Well, that's
1: a talking point for sure. Um, I have yet to see any evidence that that's the case. Um, it, because whenever you're talking about these things, mm-hmm. you have to compare them to to a similar ilk. That's what you got to start with. Right. So if you say that the Georgia law is racist, the follow-up question is, as compared to what? And no one's asking the question, as compared to what? Right. Is this law more restrictive or less restrictive than previous Georgia laws? Well, if you look at it, it's, it's actually less restrictive than previous Georgia laws if you read the laws... Verbatim, right. By any measure, right. This expands voting access, right? Okay, so now we have to look at other states. Is this law more restrictive or less restrictive than most of the laws in the books in other states? Mm-hmm. And by most of the metrics we're seeing, it's less restrictive than most of the laws in other states. In fact, it's less restrictive than the law in, say, Colorado, where Major League Baseball has moved the All Star Game to right.
0: Coors Field.
1: So the the, the All Star Game now goes to Denver. Right, Which is a 75-80% white population? Uh, I believe it's, because I did look this up the other day, yeah. it's
0: 69% white yeah. and 10% black.
1: Okay, so now there's 100... compared to Atlanta, which is 50% black. <laughs> right, so this hundred plus million dollar economic boon that's going to happen, you've now moved into a predominantly white area and out of a predominantly black area because you're not racist. Well, and, and so that's like it it's it's the fallout of this. Like all of these things are it's it's 280 characters and that's all I needed to see and now I understand everything I need to know right. and I'm going to make a decision about this. And tr- Truthfully, Major League Baseball did it because of the tweet. They did it so they can put it out there in 280 characters that we did it.
0: because oh, it's literally in their public statement that they made that this is because Joe Biden brought it up. Right. They, they literally say that in their press release. Yeah.
1: And so, but when you look at the fallout, they move it to a place with more restrictive laws. So clearly they don't care that much about the law. Well, I don't know they're, if they're, they're actually
0: more restrictive. It's similar. So, for example, in Colorado, they have 15 days of early voting. Right. In Georgia, this. New law expands 17. it to 17 or 19, depending on which counties want to right. add a couple of extra days. Right. Uh, when you look at whether or not there is a, a voter ID, mm-hmm. both acquire a voter ID. Both. Right. Um, now, Jen Psaki, the press secretary for the president, the other day tried to make a comparison and say, no, no Colorado is actually much uh, more accessible than Georgia, and her point was there's a lot more mail-in voting, and they send it out to 100% of people. First of all, she gets her facts wrong because it sends it out to 100% of registered voters. Right. Not every citizen gets it. And how do you get registered for your mail-in ballot? You bring a photo you ID. You have an ID. Right. And so, by any measure, these laws are similar.
1: And correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the Georgia law actually add some ballot boxes? That it, more it, than what they were?
0: Well, it depends on how you look at
1: it. Okay. Because
0: if you're looking at the Georgia law pre-COVID, mm-hmm. then um, yes, because ballot boxes were literally not a thing in right. the election before coronavirus. Right. And then because of concerns about the coronavirus, they added mailboxes or these drop boxes, and then they realized... You know what? Leaving giant receptacles for votes unattended outside where anyone could access them 24 hours a day with no surveillance is a really dumb idea. Mm -hmm. So we're going to keep the boxes. We're just going to keep them inside the polling place. Right. So somebody could see them. And and if there was any tampering, they would know about it. Right. That's all they did, which seems perfectly reasonable. to me. It
1: it does. But listen, this it's interesting that it's Georgia and Colorado that Mm -hmm. are the, the. talking point here because of what baseball backed itself into because it wasn't that long ago that you could compare what brian kemp was doing in georgia with opening back up in the midst of this pandemic still in sort of the early stages mm-hmm. and colorado whose orders from the governor's office were very very similar and the media destroyed destroyed brian kemp in georgia mm-hmm. they for their murderous experiments Whereas the exact same thing was happening with a Democratic governor in Colorado, and the conversations weren't taking place. So like, what you've ultimately arrived at is another example of the fact that n- everything is in a vacuum. Nothing is compared to anything else. Like, the, I think one of the most important phrases you can have in life is, as evidenced by. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think this is a racist law, as evidenced by. Or as compared to what, like we mentioned earlier. Right. And that, that,
0: that but, was But my you don't whole go down part. there. Yeah. I, I don't think that Georgia's law is more open or disenfranchises, uh, disenfranchises voters less. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that either one really does that, either Colorado or Georgia. But my point in all of this is you can't say the law is racist in Georgia when they have virtually exactly the same law in Colorado and it's not racist. Right. Either. That so, doesn't make any sense. So
1: then you break down to why then? Like, if, if the law in Colorado is the same as the law in Georgia, why did you do this? And the answer is the answer to everything right now, because somebody wanted us to, and a very loud somebody wanted us to. It's it, That's the answer. And and it's, it's not that you care, and that's probably the most frustrating part. If Rob Manfred and Tony Clark uh, looked at this and said, we really believe that this is a problem, then... It, the onus is on them to take this All-Star game to a place that has incredibly open, unrestrictive voting laws. That makes a statement. But when you make the lateral move, all you do is say, we really don't actually care about the issue. This is virtue signaling.
0: Which actually, I think, is the correct interpretation of all of this. Right. It, it was more about the appearance of doing something noble than actually doing something noble. Right. I, I, don't, I don't think pulling it out of, you know, Atlanta was noble in the first place, right. but they were really a lot more worried about the perception Mm -hmm. than they were. And one thing that we learned just recently is that there was actually kind of a focus group kind of thing that went on that helped go into this decision-making, which included 50 minority players, including, and I really hated this because I'm a fan of his, Mm -hmm. and I was at his very first uh, major league debut game Mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. Jason Hayward was one of the ringleaders of this. Um, But here's the thing. There were only 50 players in
1: it. How many Major League Baseball players are there, including Minor League and everything else? Uh, just from a Major League standpoint, uh, and guys that are close to the bigs, you're looking at over 1,000 players. Easily. So.
0: And 50 players made yeah. this decision that affected the
1: entire league and the city of Atlanta? Right. So it, that, that's a problem. Um, and Then I begin to look at some of the other angles on this thing that I haven't really heard talked about. Like one of the things I believe that, I, that, uh, that came up was that Coke. Coke was pushing for Major League Baseball to move this thing out of Georgia?
0: Well, Coca-Cola has gotten but, su- substantially more on the left bend
1: here recently. But I don't where know is why.
0: Coke headquartered? Atlanta.
1: Mm-hmm. So are they going to close down World of Coke in Atlanta because... This law is racist, but no. Well,
0: go, going according to their standard, then they should move it to Denver
1: for sure, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. And I mean, I'm it's like Denver. Marco Rubio tweeted it at um, at Rob Manfred, like, "Are you going to renounce your membership and at Augusta National?" Right. So, uh, so there's all of these elements in there. But then there's a, there's this is compared to most readily the NBA pulling its All Star game out of Charlotte, mm. so. The NBA pulled its all-star game out of Charlotte because of the law that was on the books regarding the bathroom. We get that. 2015. This right. happened NCAA
0: before. did the same thing with the tournament. Right.
1: So there's precedent. I don't think that that's apples to apples to apples, though, because the NBA is a salary cap league. No matter how much revenue the Charlotte Bobcats or Hornets or whatever called, they were called in 2015 yeah. might have generated from that, It wasn't going to affect the competitiveness on the floor. I think this could have an impact on Atlanta from a competitive standpoint because they're coming off of this COVID year where there was no revenue. There were no ticket sales. Right. The event staff and event people have been impacted more than even the restaurant industry. And and from a competitive standpoint, just from the sports avenue, baseball is not a salary cap sport. So... This brings $100 million economic impact into the area. What does it bring into the Braves organization specifically mm-hmm. that they then are able to turn around from those attendance numbers, those ticket sales, and maybe go get an extra arm at the trade deadline or maybe go, go make a move that they can't do because this thing that was in their budget that they were counting on coming before the trade deadline, mind you, isn't there anymore coming off of the worst economic year in the history of North American professional sports. So this this virtue-signaling decision that has no real impact as it pertains to the law or the way anybody feels about the law has only accomplished two things. Mm -hmm. It's made people, many people, stop watching your sport. Rob Manfred's awesome at that. It's made people stop watching your sport, and now it could potentially have an actual impact on on the Braves in terms of what their bottom line looks like and what that allows them to do. Because as a Braves fan, you know Liberty Media doesn't like to spend a lot of money, and anything <laughs> You're not that wrong. right and and the battery itself. One of the things people don't realize is like the battery itself is a real estate venture for Liberty Media. That's what that is. And so bringing that revenue in at the battery is positive for liberty media which mm-hmm. affects the bottom line positively for atlanta which affects the on-field product uh, product and now all of that has a brand new little variable thrown in there because of rob manfred
0: well you've touched on something really interesting and i want to expound on it a little bit because here's the thing that people that may not necessarily follow baseball like you and i do need to realize about it truist park is brand new
1: for sure yeah it, terrible it, name but yes
0: yes it is a terrible yeah. name um they're well, we won't get into that. Yeah, all day. SunTrust
1: was a great Sundress name.
0: SunTrust was a good name. Yeah, but either way, um, the the new park there, it's an investment. They they just sunk a lot of money into it, probably partially because of the possibility mm-hmm. of getting a big event like the All Star Game. Um, th- that was probably some of the forethought in in building the new park, because you know Turner Field, whether where the odds are going to get a, uh, an All Star Game in there, right? Um, all of the investment that goes into uh, the battery, the surrounding areas, your hospitality. Th- that's where all that $100 million comes from. And then there's the added expense that we really have no way to calculate that you just talked about right. in the um, added fans, more people wanting to come see it, that kind of thing, that generated interest from the All-Star game. So we're talking bare minimum $100 million, possibly significantly more. right? And what Major League Baseball did was take all of that money from a majority black area mm-hmm. where there's a lot of black business owners and black employees that would have benefited directly from the all-star game right. and moved it to an incredibly white community. right? And here's the thing, even the guy that's living in downtown Atlanta has voted for Democrats his entire life, um, politically aligns with your Joe Bidens or your Kamala Harris's much more so than somebody like you or I. Do you think that guy is really thrilled with what they've done here? Even if he doesn't like the Georgia law, they've just kicked the bucket out from under this guy. Right. And, and that's what's really sad about this.
1: Well, and I think you're already starting to see the backlash from this because you're starting to see Jen Psaki and Joe Biden and even Stacey Abrams back away from the idea that this was a good idea. like uh, Or at the very least,
0: back away from the idea that they had something to influence right. that
1: decision. Right. And so uh, – The backlash is going to come, unfortunately, for Major League Baseball. um, They're going into a a very important year. The the collective bargaining agreement is going to expire. Mm -hmm. They are probably headed to a strike, as evidenced by the fact that both the Players Association and the owners wanted the DH in the National League, and they couldn't even agree to that. How are they going to agree to a collective bargaining agreement? So you're going to go from... This worst year in North American professional sports history for everybody in this COVID year with no revenue into this year where you began the year by kicking your fan base in the groin Mm -hmm. and saying that politics are now part of sports, whereas most baseball fans actually go, I don't really want it to be. Like, I don't want it to be a part of sports. I don't want to think about those things. I want to watch baseball. You've now brought them back into the conversation again, Mm -hmm. and you're headed into what's probably going to be a strike-shortened year or a lockout year because they can't agree to terms on a collective bargaining agreement. You're gonna murder the sport. I mean, this was this was it. This and, and was the baseball year. Baseball
0: was already struggling in that Right,
1: area. that's the problem. Right. This was the year to make a move and try to gain. And I think they've alienated a lot of fans who won't. They they just won't watch it.
0: Yeah, it really is. It really is sad. And and here's the thing. And this goes to one of the larger points that I've been making for years now. When it came to because baseball seemed to be the one sport that was kind of a holdout on all of this and trying to stay out of the politics as much as possible. Right. Uh, the NFL already di- you know dipped its toe in it with the Colin Kaepernick thing, NBA, like, they just dove in face first.
1: Yes, they were baptized into
0: it. Yes. Right. And, and But baseball has always been, at least in the, the recent years, seemed to kind of stay out of it as much as possible. Right. And now they've kind of, uh, well in a, in a big way, they've jumped into it. And so here's the thing that I keep saying. I'm worried about the country mm-hmm. because if we have lost all of our common spaces, because If you were a baseball fan, are you really worried that there might be a whole bunch of Democrats in the stadium with you? No, No, you can bond over the fact that you like baseball. Right. Um, And and that helps heal some wounds. And I'm worried that we're leading to a country that's not just divided in the terms of our political disagreements, but they're destroying all the spaces that might have given us a reason to listen to one another and get to know Mm -hmm. one another on a level other than politics. Right. Now everything's filtered through politics and we have nowhere to just, you know, Get, get a release, sit back, and, right. and maybe meet, meet some people we wouldn't meet outside the political arena that have different political ideas than
1: we do. Well, and this is, you know, I, I mean, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe sports actually comes from a French word that means to take away. the idea being that the whole point of sports, was to be taken away from these other things. That right, that's it's escapism. That's it. That's that's the whole point. That's, that's all of it. That's everything.
0: And that's been true since the Alexander the Great days. Right,
1: and that was one of the, the best parts about, I think baseball personally is the best sport to attend in person because mm-hmm. you can sit and you can talk. And I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a game and met somebody next to me or in, right in front of me in the section and started to talk to them. And you can't do that necessarily at football or at basketball where the action's constant. You can do that at baseball. Mm -hmm. And baseball is a wonderful place for that, where people who don't look like you and people who don't think like you are wearing the same jersey that you're wearing. Mm -hmm. And you can really, truly share that. And you can really, truly have that moment. And I don't actually care who you voted for. I don't actually care who you're going home with, I don't care about any of those things. In this moment, Ronald Acuna is up in the bottom of the seventh, and we're down two. Mm -hmm. And that's all we care about. That doesn't matter anymore. Everything culturally is all about how you vote and whether it is the correct way. Because the idea that there is a way that is correct or incorrect is what permeates all of culture now. That you must think like me and and ultimately it comes down to and this gets into your broader philosophical stuff that we won't don't have time to go down to <laughs> right. but but ultimately it comes down to self worship like that's it that's the idea of everything you must think like i do vote like i do be like me because that validates and affirms me and i can't be wrong i am wonderful and so i think this this self worship is sort of at the core of all of this and uh and people don't like conflict and disagreement or the cognitive dissonance that comes from new ideas and different ideas. And the beauty of sports is just none of those ideas matter right now. We're, we're here right. for a game, and that's what matters. And it's gone. Um, I, I don't think it's coming back, uh, to, to be honest with you, because if baseball can be influenced to do something like this –
0: Right. Specifically trying to alter a state's voting policy because they don't, you know, we're going to take literally in this case, take our ball and go home. Right. If you don't play the way that we want you to. Right. And getting involved in politics.
1: Right. So, you know, what happens in Texas and Florida, Mm -hmm. states that are going to be most likely to pass laws that the left do not agree with how the Rangers going to do, how the Marlins going to do? The Astros will probably do well. They've already gotten away with plenty. But how do you, like, how, how, what's going to happen there? Because now you've set a precedent if you're baseball. Because here's what you know about the left if you're paying attention in culture. Mm-hmm. One thing is never enough. If you do one thing, there's always something else.
0: Oh, that's it's, why I've said whether you're a company or whether you are an individual, the stupidest thing you can do at this point is to give in and apologize for something that the left deems, um, you know, beyond... Because here's the thing, and and this comes down to a worldview thing that you were kind of hinting at earlier. There is no such thing as forgiveness in the church of leftism. No. With Christianity, it's the core of the whole religion. Right. With leftism, it's you bow down and kiss the ring, and you will conform just like the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And because of that, when you step out of line, there is no forgiveness for that. Right. And so – I think they're just kidding themselves and i think base you know major league baseball is a part of this that if you go along to get along then you know you'll be okay with us that never happens and you would think after this happens time and time and time again to different companies like chick-fil-a basically caved right have have the leftist attacks on chick-fil-a stopped no no and they never will no and they're not going to no and that's the point um Ultimately that, that's what's going to happen is comply or be destroyed and that is their mantra. Mm-hmm. And, and really that's the thing though when you when you talked about the uh, self-worship, this all goes back to the idea that wokeism and, and leftism is a collectivist mindset right It's possible to coexist with someone that disagrees with you and, and go out and, and watch a ball game with them. That's something that you can do if you're an individualist. Mm-hmm. It's not possible if you're a collectivist because I need society to validate me. If you're a Christian, for example, you know, I only care about whether or not I'm right with God. Mm -hmm. Whether or not society agrees with me is really immaterial. Right. And so, but with with leftism, they need that to validate them because their only standard is what society says. And because Mm -hmm. of that they have to have that shift and conform to their beliefs or else it doesn't work anymore. Right. And so that's the difference.
1: And this gets into the broader strokes of you know, the underlying narrative of, of, or idea, rather, of your entire show mm-hmm. that ultimately we can have these conversations and we can talk about this because you and I both believe that there is an unshakable, unchangeable, absolute foundation that undergirds all of this. Right. So you have to, you have, to have that. If you don't, if society is what dictates that which is right and that which is wrong, that's an ever-changing target. That is mm-hmm. a constant moving target, and you cannot ever hit it at all. It's com- constantly relative and constantly subjective, and and that's how you get to where we are now. That things that ten years ago, we're, I mean, we, we're we're large chunks of our society are advocating for things that ten years ago collectively all of us would have said that's horrible we can't do that
0: oh i mean that a great illustration of that is uh, a bunch of your leftists now are coming out and talking about how horrible friends is right and i'm like okay friends is the show that had rachel have a baby out of wedlock Mm -hmm. and one of the main characters ross has a divorced lesbian wife that mm-hmm. he attends the wedding of like th- there's incredibly leftist themes in the show all throughout but they're oh. saying they occasionally make things that are they make jokes that are um insensitive to women or insensitive to homophobic. i'm like if this is how fast the overton window is moving right literally nobody can keep
1: up no one can and ultimately it all will circle back around again and that that's just the way that it has to go right because if the target constantly moves eventually you've got to realize that the target is an absolutely impossible standard and that no one is acceptable and you should let all of this go or you're gonna end up with an amount of anxiety that no one can live with and and that's sort of where we are and do you know what is really nice when you have all this anxiety a baseball game (laughs) well you ruined that yeah (laughs) Yeah. um actually i was going to ask one
0: other thing about this as well um i understand that baseball is working very hard right now to expand its uh viewer base into
1: china yeah, now, so that's have the interesting rumors. thing. Have you, have you I, read about the deal that took place a week before? No, I have, I have not. Okay, so, and I don't come to me for specifics because I've got four, four children at home. I'm very tired. <laughs> so, um, but Major League Baseball agreed to terms with a CCP-backed company mm-hmm. a week before deciding that or announcing that they were going to move the All-Star game. So the idea of... We're going to move the All-Star Game because we think that this Georgia law, which requires ID to vote and doesn't allow people to give you water and food within 150 feet of the polling location, is supremely restrictive. But we're going to do business with a company backed by the CCP, well known for its Uyghur camps at this point, and now the Daily Wire broke this week, uh, actual Christian camps as well, where they're forcing Christians to renounce their face. Their faith, and by the way, how many elections are there in in China? Well, and so... I, I know that
0: there's drop boxes at all of
1: them. Yeah, and early so, voting. Right, there's there's a, like twenty days of early voting in China, right. which is why that this is perfectly
0: acceptable for Major League Baseball to do. Right, like so, and and that's it's absolutely incredible. Yeah, I mean... they have literal concentration yeah. camps. Yeah, but the Georgia law is, according to President Biden. Jim Crow 2.0. That's beyond the pale. We can't have an All Star game in Georgia because of that, right? Which here's the thing. I said for a long. I, I said this from the very beginning. If that's how restrictive and evil it is, mm-hmm. why do they still have a team in Georgia? Right. Like move the Braves somewhere.
2: Well, else.
1: and so that that's what's so fascinating is that the thing that the Braves did that most impacted a black community and a large portion of, of, of black citizens negatively came when they moved to SunTrust Park. Right. Like, that's the irony of all of this, that that at Turner Field, they were right there in Atlanta and the economic boon to the area was big. But if you had ever gone to Turner Field, especially in the latter years, you know like, it, it wasn't great parking. There were all sorts of issues. They right. picked up and they moved out of this and they moved to East Cobb, which is – far more white now there's uh, as you outlined the people impacted by this move you have tremendous amount of of black employees of the braves who were going to benefit tremendous amount of black employees there in the battery who are going to benefit and there's the trickle down of the economics but the braves themselves picked up and moved out of this largely black area and moved into a largely white area and no one said anything about it at that time well loudly um now, uh, there's this voting rights law that's passed, and that actually, from what I've read, I've seen several places that have said that that um, most registered black voters, I think it was around 70% of registered black voters support voter ID, that so, oh yeah, so, it's
0: it's like 80 in the general pop. Right. So this is an overwhelmingly Can you think of anything right. Americans 80% of
1: us agree on? Right. It's virtually nothing. Right. And so so this thing doesn't actually affect black Americans at all. But well, be- but now Jeremy, I have to correct you on that.
0: <laughs> you know, black people are way too stupid to be able to get their own IDs or to be able to go online to figure out how to vote and by the way, that's not me saying that. That's the president of the United right, States saying right. that they aren't intelligent enough right. to be able to to figure out how to vote, to be able to get their own ID. By the way, Georgia, you can get one for free if you don't want to get a driver's license. You can literally have – I see black drivers. I mean – Right. I, there's not – They're not a, getting driver's license somehow.
1: There's not um, a lot that, that you – can do that doesn't require an id and so that's why the voter id thing uh, being specifically racist has always been a controversial question for me because i don't understand it i mean the idea right, right? of people
0: have ids
1: right i apparently not uh, apparently and, there's something i'm missing
0: and here's the other thing too the whole uh you know not being able to give people water thing which by the way is a complete lie
1: yeah, that's not um, the way the law is written at
0: all. Yeah, there's absolutely no truth to it whatsoever. Right. Um, because if, if your spouse is thirsty and you want to go get water, you can. Right. Uh, and, and even – all they're saying is a, a stranger, a campaign worker wearing a vote for Biden or vote for Trump shirt can't go around handing out bottles of water to people. Right. They can even bring water if they want to and set it up as long as it's unmanned. All right. this is saying is that they cannot – basically campaign and give you gifts in line right. which by the way is a law that colorado also has right right so but, but that aside and here's the craziest thing too that's only within 100 feet of a voting place they literally can walk up saying hey i will give you this bottle of water if you will vote for joe biden as long as they're 100 feet away right what is that like a first down
1: Oh, uh, yeah. It it ain't much. It's not a lot, you know, three three feet a yard, a hundred feet, you're looking at about thirty yards, you know. and you're an Auburn fan, so thirty yards is a first down a lot of times. So, <laughs> no, you're not wrong. You know, so um Oh look, we jumped off sides again. That's right. <laughs> that's, and Bonic scrambles yeah. back and that's a sack. Okay. <laughs> so right. So uh, but but it's 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 a frustrating thing and, and the thing is this there's a lot of problems that we do have. That we need to talk about, sure, and a, a lot of people who would all like to attend that all- star game would actually agree on a lot of those problems, but we can't get to that. Um, I, th- I think one of the it's so simple and it 's not elegant, but one of the best things I've seen any sports commentator say in the last year. Was the Charles Barkley statement last week? I was actually going to ask you about yeah that. yeah that that I mean, and Barkley is a very is is I mean he's from Leeds, Alabama. He is a very simple way of putting things, but he's not wrong. And this is not an exclusively left thing. This the, the, you've got plenty of people that are political leaders more toward the right side of the aisle who also enjoy the gaps between people because they see a place to optimize their own successes in the gaps between the citizenry.
0: Right, it's a way to make political hay. That's it. The thing about Charles Barkley and, you know, um, hometown guy, me being an Auburn person, big fan of his, the man voted for and not just voted for, campaigned for Doug Jones. Yeah. I do not see a lot politically eye-to-eye with Charles Barkley. Right. But what he said there is... Common sense Mm -hmm. that there are a lot of people on the left and the right that benefit from the divides, which is absolutely true. And I watched that and I was just like, I don't, I don't see the controversy.
1: No, there's no controversy there. The problem is that Charles wasn't supposed to say it. That was the problem. Now,
0: Charles does excel. And I know that he would hate making this comparison, but Charles and Trump have one thing in common. They are excellent at saying the quiet part out loud. Oh,
1: for sure. The, I will never forget. And sometimes the, when
0: Trump does it, it annoys me. But the point right. is, they're both good at it.
1: I'll never forget. Oh, man. However many years ago it's been when the Dallas Mavericks had brought the very first chinese uh, Chinese-born player to the NBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wang Juju, I think it was. And so this game is on TNT and they're doing they're doing the broadcast about how big of a deal this is that it's the very first chinese-born player in the usa Mm -hmm. uh in in the nba and then uh, Ernie kicks it over to Chuck, and Chuck immediately says, "Because this is during the time that there had been a helicopter crash, uh, and some American citizens were being held by the Chinese government." Mm-hmm. And immediately Chuck goes, "I don't think he should be allowed to play till we get our people back." And so, and you see Ernie on air go, "Uh," <laughs> and so that's Chuck. He's gonna say the quiet part out loud. He's going but but unfortunately, the quiet part out loud has become. The, the stuff that we should all be willing to say and the stuff that we should all be willing to recognize, which is that what your politicians tell you about your neighbor isn't true. You need to go talk to your neighbor. And well, I can't you, believe that him saying, I really believe that most white people are good people. That's the controversial thing to say now? Right. And so the, the idea, and if you look at just sort of everything that's happened over the last year plus is it, the, it's it's a collectivist mindset that benefits off of separating everybody from each other. It does. And and that's what's happened over the last year is we've gone to our homes. We've stopped talking to people. We've become afraid of our neighbors. We think that that Twitter is real life and Facebook is real life and all these things are real life. We stopped having conversations with people because all of the points where those conversations are supposed to happen are now regulated or eliminated. Mm -hmm. And the best place to have one of those conversations, oh, by the way, is a baseball game yeah like well, one and last, and you can't do it anymore
0: one last thing that i wanted to bring you up and i know that this is something that is not uh unpolarizing but it really should be because it's hysterical mm-hmm. um i know that you like me are a big fan of the babylon b oh
1: cracks me up yeah, yeah
0: i think the babylon b just absolutely hit the nail on the head when they released the headline that major league baseball will no longer require photo id to buy beer
1: yeah, that was... And the funny thing was I had actually made that that, that joke to somebody. Right. Um, the, like, As soon as baseball announced this, it was mm-hmm. like, well, photo ID is, is racist. I'm like, so black people can't buy beer? That's what you're telling me? Because like, black people clearly don't have IDs. They're, and so it doesn't make sense at all. And so so now either we, we stop IDing people for our beer sales or we stop selling beer in Major League ballparks. Which one of those two do you think they're going to do first?
0: Right. Well, he, here's what... Here's what it all boils down to, and I'm going to try to pull a Charles Barkley here and super simplify it. Um, If that is the case, if it's – if photo ID is not racist in virtually every facet of American life, whether it's uh, buying a firearm or getting on an airplane or buying alcohol or Mm -hmm. buying cigarettes or or any of those things.
1: Picking up your will call tickets at a baseball game. Right,
0: picking up your tickets at a baseball game, getting a passport, all of those things. Mm -hmm. It's, It's not racist there but it is racist for this one very specific thing, which is voting, then first of all, the obvious conclusion is, okay, it's not really racist. Mm -hmm. And then the second conclusion that you have to draw to, because you have to ask yourself, why are they saying it's racist in this one specific instance when it's not racist anywhere else? Mm -hmm. It must be because they have a vested interest in not requiring ID Mm -hmm. in this one particular instance in American life. So the side that is claiming that everything was on the up and up, that there was no fraud, that it was a perfect election, that there are not people that are you know going around and, and voting when they shouldn't be, mm-hmm. is also the side that is claiming, but we shouldn't have any way to check that. Right. If if, if you were a college student, for example, let, let's say you were somebody that really liked alcohol and wanted to buy alcohol, and, and I was in a fraternity at Auburn, I, I get it, people, I'm, I know people do this. Mm-hmm. Um, If you were not 21 yet, and you wanted to get beer, would you rather there be a system where you do have to check photo ID or where you do not? The answer is obvious. You right. would want the one where you don't check it. So the person that's not supposed to vote, or the person that would rather people that aren't supposed to vote be able to vote, they're going to be the ones favoring the system where you don't check it. It's just that simple. Right. But they try to make it complicated with the race thing, right. and it's a distraction.
1: That's all it is. And, and unfortunately, and this is, I've had this conversation with a lot of people over the last year. And, and I think that these things need to be, they need to be acknowledged. They, they need to be said. Sure, um, There are numerous students on my staff that are black students. And they sit in my office and they talk all the time. And I listened to four, uh, four young black men a few weeks ago sitting in my office talking to each other about their experiences of actual experienced racism in which they were uh, they were made to feel a certain way or they were treated a certain way based mm-hmm. solely upon their skin color. That's the stuff that has to be dealt with. That's the stuff that we have to get rid of. Those are the things that we should be able to have conversations sure. about. But every time you take that word, racism, and you throw it up against something that's not even racially informed, let alone racist, then you minimize the real things that have to be dealt with right because you have the boy who cried wolf mentality and people assume that
0: if if there is a a portion of the population Mm -hmm. that anytime they use the word racism or talk about racism it's something that's not racism and actually just has something to do with a political agenda right then people start thinking that when people legitimately talk about their experiencing uh, experiences where they did experience racism that they must be seeking after a political agenda too and they're less likely to take it seriously. Right. That's it's the, the Andre the giant
1: approach to all of it. Exactly. You keep using that word. I do I not, do think, not it think, it means, think it, it means what you think it means. But but we've
0: seen this happen. Mm-hmm. And when Joe Biden goes on TV saying that this law which is in no way racist. Right. And I mean like even if the water thing were true like Only black people get thirsty. White people don't get thirsty. Like, how how would that be disenfranchising specifically black people even if it were the
1: case? Right.
0: Um, But anyway, that aside, when he says this is Jim Crow 2.0, I got to sit there and be thinking, how does that sound to a person that actually lived through Jim Crow? Right, right. I mean, that not being able to have a campaign worker walk up to you and give you free water in exchange for a vote, that's the same thing as having – Hoses and dogs turned on. you, Or being told
1: which fountain you're allowed to drink from. That
0: doesn't make any sense. And so it just diminishes their experience and actual occurrences of real racism.
1: Right. And and that's the thing is that one of the things that this entire movement has done has tried to uh, minimize the voices that did live that. Uh, the Shelby Steeles of the world, the Thomas Moores of the world, these people who, who really experienced it, those voices are now being ostracized and thrown out alongside Huck Finn novels. So it, it, and, and Dr. Seuss. Right. And so those voices that are about experiencing this negativity of the human condition and persevering through it and learning from it so as to not repeat it, those are the voices that we need to turn to. Can't hear them anymore. Like they are, they're ostracized from from the halls of power and from the, even even the window of popular conversation, the Overton window itself. Like you can't talk about those anymore because the idea that Shelby Steele is not uh, not a a, a and, and the word slips my mind as I'm here. The idea that Shelby Steele is not an expert on the lived experiences of racism in America, Mm -hmm. and we should throw him out and not listen to him is a problem. And that's what happens when Amazon takes down Shelby Steele's movie. When Amazon doesn't want to sell Shelby Steele books, that's what's happening. And so there's no point of reference for people.
0: Well, and ultimately it does go back to the idea that this, kind of what I was saying just a second ago, that... um, the reason that, that is the way that people view racism when people say it a lot of times is it's just somebody trying to get their way politically or it's just about a political opinion mm-hmm. is because there is a certain class of people that will deem actual racism, not racism, if it doesn't fit their agenda. Yeah. And then we'll reverse it and call things that are not racism, racism. Right. When it does. And so to them, racist becomes just a meaningless term that means something that I politically dislike. Right. And that's the problem. That is the problem. Um, um, it's not just that they're diminishing real experiences of racism. They're completely taking it away and making it mean something completely different.
1: Right. You're, you're, you're redefining the term. Right. Uh, and when you do that, you move completely away from the entire idea of, if, if you read, obviously everybody knows the I Have a Dream speech, but if you read any of, of Dr. King's other speeches, mm. the entire idea that he pushes is the individual idea of of a human being and their character and who they are absent of any of the external things like skin color like that's the idea is the promotion of the content of character and those things can't be evaluated at all those things can't be considered at all everything has to be considered through the prism of tribalism and and the idea of an individual is now gone because an individual is a problem for the collective and to go back to your broader idea from earlier the whole thing is a push for, for the collective. And so the older I get, I think the more I realize that Mike judge actually had a pretty good handle on the world. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll always remember, I think it was season one of King of the Hill. There's, uh, it may have even been the first episode, um, where Hank Hill's neighbor moves in and he's a Vietnamese guy, but he's a real jerk. And he and Hank don't get along with each other. And Hank begins to voice that he doesn't like him. And and his wife says, now, Hank, you don't want people to think you're racist. And he just says, what kind of world is it if I can only hate a man if he's white? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we laugh at it. But, but that was 20-something years ago. And look where we are now is that you can't comment on, any, on anybody as an individual. You have to comment on everything from this tribalistic perspective. And, and it really it, it shattered the common things that we have. Because what we have, and any student of the Bible knows this, what we have is a whole lot more in common than we have different, even among Christians and non Christians we have a whole lot more in common than we have different, and those are things that aren 't even allowed to be discussed anymore.
0: Well, I know that we 're going somewhat off the uh, topic that I intended for us to go, but mm-hmm. you know I think it 's a good subject to discuss, so i 'm going to go there anyway sure um, individualism is a solely judeo christian idea it mm-hmm. didn 't exist pre-exist i mean obviously it's always existed because it's an eternal truth but what i'm saying is the idea was not popularized in the known world until the spread of christianity outside of jerusalem right and so the interesting thing there is pagans did not think that every other god didn't exist Mm -hmm. they believed that all the gods existed it's just that my god is better than your god Mm -hmm. and they thought of it in terms of it and this is why there were things like blood feuds Mm -hmm. um If one of your guys kills one of our guys, then it doesn't matter if we actually kill the slave or if we actually kill um, the guy that uh, did the murder. Mm -hmm. We just have to have some member of your tribe to sacrifice in order for it to be fair. They view people as a group, as a collective. Judaism and then later Christianity was the first way of thinking in human history that was like, no, everybody's created by God. Everybody's an individual. He's accountable for his own actions and nobody else's. Right. And justice means carrying out punishment for sins committed on the offender, mm-hmm. not anybody else. And so I know that as Westerners, we're just kind of accustomed to that, but we're regressing into that now. Yeah. That as long as we take a pound of flesh from someone of your tribe, doesn't matter if you actually did anything wrong or not. Right. Um. You know, it doesn't matter if it's over 100 years after slavery was ended, we have to take some money from white people now to make up for past uh, offenses against us, even if you've never done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and it's th- that whole mentality has unfortunately just we, we have regressed back into a form of tribalistic
1: paganism. Mm-hmm. And we call it progressive. Because yep. I don't think that word means what you think it, it means.
0: It, it is funny how often progressivism has led us into something that is thousands of years old and actually cuts against the newest idea, uh, which is free market capitalism, which is only about you know 200-ish years old. Right. Yeah. Anyway. All right, man. Well, it has been
1: a great interview. I yeah, really enjoyed it.
0: And right. uh, is there anything that maybe I wouldn't have thought to to talk about or maybe something that I would have missed that you'd like the audience to know?
1: Um, no, I mean, I think, I think we're pretty thorough. Um, I, the big thing it just comes down to is like ma- major league baseball is no different than every other corporation, than, than every other business. Um, the pe the thing that people need to realize is corporations don't have ideas. Corporations have one agenda, one agenda only make money, right? Do business. Like Rob Manfred's really bad at that part, yes. but, but, that's their idea and so if you believe starbucks believes this thing they don't if the culture changes starbucks is going to change with them if you believe that baseball believes this thing it doesn't as the culture changes baseball is going to change with it and so the best thing that people can possibly do is just cut it off like go enjoy the things that you enjoy and and step away from all of this other stuff and it's it's the only way we're ever going to take it back it's it's basically giving society its own cognitive therapy like taking the power out of this stop giving it meaning if it doesn't have meaning then it can't bring you anxiety and so the reality is it stinks that i can't take my eight-year-old to the home run derby this summer really does but at the same time I could say, you know what, we're boycotting the Home Run Derby, we're not going to watch the Home Run Derby. But that punishes my 8-year-old because he loves the Home Run Derby. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to watch baseball, and we're not going to talk about, about the other stuff because he's 8, and he doesn't need to know about any of this stuff right now. But I think we have to um, – like, I've, I've heard a big push from Ben Shapiro and others that that it's time for the right to start – trying to deplatform and cancel the same way that the left does. And they think that's the way to fight back. I think the only way to fight back is to, is to say, no, we just won't be canceled. Like, we're going to do the things we want to do and we're still going to vote the way that we want to vote. And, and that's the way that it's going to go. And, and so I think that's it is you have to find ways to engage with people in the common spaces baseball is a great spot for that but the biggest thing the biggest idea that i'll Mm -hmm. leave with you um, before i go get my son and take him to a baseball game that he's playing in is stop believing things about people you don't know that are being told to you by other people you don't know you go talk to your neighbor. That's go basically
0: meet. Twitter. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's so like,
1: thing. like the government tells you these things about white people or about black people, or they tell you these things about conservatives or about the left, and you hear all of these things. Like, put the phone down and go talk to somebody you don't know. And what you'll find is that most of the interactions are really positive, and that that's the place where you make hay. That's the place where you, where you make society better. And that's that's what we have to do. And I think as Christians, we understand that it's it's under an umbrella that we call the Great Commission. But mm-hmm. but that's the idea is that you're supposed to go out and love your neighbor, and you're supposed to go out and talk with your neighbor and get to know your neighbor. And we we live in the most technologically connected society in the history of the world, and we've never been further apart. And, it's sad, yeah, yeah. And, and so conversations and sometimes about important things and sometimes about the weather and sometimes about nothing at all that's the way that we make the world better
3: yeah
0: and here's the thing jeremy i agree with that and i want that to be the case because you know me i love my baseball Mm -hmm. i I do i I love baseball and i i i know that most people aren't in this boat but i do politics every day right i don't want it in my baseball right i just want baseball i'm I'm tired of it by the Mm -hmm. end of the day and i just want to watch the braves and you know watch them Mm -hmm. lose and yeah that's what they do, two and four, and they're good at it, yeah, um, but yeah well, we, and we weren't two and four until yesterday, we right. were four, you know, oh and four,
1: thank you, Pablo Sandoval yeah, but anyway,
0: my point in all of that is and and where i where I'm trying to sort of bring it to a head is i I want that to be the case i want to be able to just watch my baseball and even though they they do occasionally make stupid decisions like this that are politically motivated that i can still enjoy it Mm -hmm. however what i'm worried is going to happen and i think it's going to come sooner rather than later is they will make the thing unwatchable Mm -hmm. and i don't know if you paid any attention i actually did watch it just um for the sake of of trying to figure it out i watched some of the nba games to see what was going on because i'm not really an nba guy Mm -hmm. um i watch march madness and that's about all the the basketball that i do right but but i was watching it and it was nothing but like every two minutes some kind of virtue signaling black lives matter is literally painted on the court Mm -hmm. and like i could not watch it for more than a few minutes because i was so annoyed at it the entire time you notice that afraid that they will make it unwatchable
1: so that's where if you like, if you're genuinely a believer in capitalism and a free market economy, mm-hmm. that's where you have to trust it to do its job. And I do, um, and, and and it, and it will. Um, that ultimately, that will happen when you get to that point. That that because what you do, this is the big thing that people have to understand. Like, what you do when you do what baseball has done is you tell a large swath of your fan base. Baseball is largely a conservative fan base especially in the Georgia area. When you tell a large swath of your fan base, if you support this law, because you're tacitly saying, if you support this law, you're racist. You've just alienated that fan base. Well, what people learned over the last year is they can get by just fine without sports. They, they had a year without them. Yeah, see, they that's can... the thing.
0: This is the dumbest possible time right. to do it
1: because people are out of the habit right. of watching it. You're supposed to be trying to bring people back, and now you're alienating them. They can do just fine without sports. That's not a problem at all. And so when the bottom line is affected and it's going to happen, that's when everything swings back. Uh, and it's it's not a fun swing of the pendulum right now, but it will swing back. And, and it, it'll be fine, like baseball's problem is as i outlined earlier covid this nonsense probably a lockout or a strike Mm -hmm. i don't know if baseball can recover from that there may be no baseball you don't have to worry about wokeism in your baseball there may not be baseball and so that's their problem
0: well being a believer in the free market, I don't think that that will happen because if there is a desire for something, the market will create it. Now, it may – Well, they're come. killing
1: the desire for It's the issue. Well, that's true. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: But what I'm saying is if people genuinely just want to watch baseball mm-hmm. – and I think that there will always be a, a portion of the American people. It may be smaller – um, but there will always be a portion of the American people that want to play and or watch baseball. Right. I think what's eventually going to happen is, even if it, it takes a different form or it's called something else, you're going to get baseball in some form. Yeah. Because if But it won't be Major
1: League Baseball. Maybe not. It'll be something else. It, and and that's be. the the reality of that threat existing is what keeps corporations from going too far. That, that's the whole idea um so if if there's a threat of something else there's only so far that baseball can go if there's a threat of something else there's only like you've seen it now with the nba all the stuff that was on the court and on the jerseys it's not there now um now it's basketball they they took away because they realized they had gone so far in one direction i think the, the nfl
0: starting to realize that right too. Um, right and and that amazed me with the nfl because Um, you probably know the history of this a lot better than I do, but, uh, they actually made a conscious decision at one point. We're going to be more American even than baseball.
1: Right. And
0: their logo is red, white, and blue. It looks like a flag. Right. Um, I mean, everything they, they did all kinds of salutes to the troops, Mm -hmm. um, all of that stuff. And then they just Mm -hmm. literally threw it all away within the span of about five years Mm -hmm. To where they were even afraid to do
1: anything patriotic so why would the nfl when it did all of that yeah choose to do that because
0: again it all goes back to profits and they were afraid they were going to lose their profit if they didn't
1: allow that to get take place right and now that it's not exceedingly profitable anymore in a post 9 11 world when patriotism was was at an all-time high right that stuff made sense it doesn't make business sense to do it now so they don't do it now which goes back to the point of corporations don't actually have ideas they don't actually have beliefs they don't actually have souls they they are out to make money and so any decision that baseball makes it makes because it thinks that's going to bring it more money it thinks that the that the noisy wheel is the majority it's not and it 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 hasn't been and so ultimately those things will self correct Um, and they'll go back into another swing. And whatever the next thing is, we might like, but we can't fool ourselves into thinking that baseball believes in the thing that we believe in that we like. It doesn't. It's just baseball. As I said when
0: this whole thing broke out, Jeremy, I don't want conservative baseball. No, I just want baseball. I don't want baseball to show up and be like, you know what, the Second Amendment's really important, and also uh, abortion
1: should be outlawed. Yeah.
0: I mean, that'd be nice, I guess, but the truth (laughs) is I don't really care.
1: That's right. I just want baseball. Right. Oh, and I'm with you. Like, that's it. We, ju- But until we allow the common spaces to be common again, and you right. can't do that until you agree that it's okay to have things in common, then once you get there, it'll be fine.
0: Right. And when one side is threatening to burn down your business if you don't agree with me, I can understand why that scares people. I I'm agree. not saying that that's okay. I'm not saying it's all right to cave. I'm just saying I, I understand. The rationale of seeing people that are willing to literally burn down cities and then when they say and we'll destroy your business if you don't agree with us saying yeah they might actually try to do it right so. um, but anyway all right man well it's been, it's been great, great i've had a great conversation with you uh that is um jeremy smith who is the sports information director here at faulkner university thank you so much for being with us jeremy appreciate you brother we'll be back on tactics
2: Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio.
3: That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. <laughs>
0: and welcome back everybody what, thank you so much for watching tactics and for the daily dose of stupid today we actually have a special treat for you because unlike the commissioner of baseball i actually believe in giving my customers more of the product that they want and so today we have a double dose of the daily dose of stupid so we've got a lot to get through here but the first one which um you know i had to do this like if, if you saw this story out there You knew. There was no question in your mind. Even though we've moved to the one-show-a-week format and I have significantly less time, I was not going to let this one go. I can't. When you see a religiously charged story of Democrats being stupid and knowing nothing about religion, Caleb's gotta jump on it. That's just the way that this thing works. Watching a leftist try to do religion is just hysterical. For a number of reasons. I mean, you could list a number, but it's it's kind of like watching a two-year-old trying to do algebra. Like, it's, it's kind of funny from the standpoint, and it can get sad. Or, or like watching somebody that doesn't have any legs try to, <laughs> you know, I don't know, bicycle or something like that, even though with, you know, prosthetics, they can actually do that now. Um, but the point is, like, it's just funny to watch them do something that they're so bad at. And it's kind of like how everybody likes the, uh, the American Idol singers, the ones that are really bad. They watch them for the, the people that are good, too, but they also watch them for the ones that are really awful, and that's why they do the tryouts and, and show those on TV. This is kind of what that is. Whenever the left tries to make a point using religion to do it, they almost always slam face-first into the concrete. But the thing that's even funnier about this one is that it comes from a guy who is supposed to be a minister, and this was his big selling point. And I'm talking, of course, about the senator from the great state of Georgia, Raphael Warnock, who is usually referred to as reverend, even though I don't call any human being that because that word is only used once in the Bible, and it is a name that is referred to—it's it's a name referring to God by the psalmist David— So, I I don't use that for anybody, but he is supposed to be somebody that is a minister, a preacher, someone who is supposed to be well versed in the Word of God, and, and not just any preacher, one that we were told was from a predominantly, like a historically important, predominantly black congregation that Martin Luther King Jr. himself attended. And it was an important church to the people, especially black people in the state of Georgia. And this was one of the big things that. The me- I remember the media coverage of this, talking about how Trump is a, a terrible person that doesn't live by the gospels and is a heathen. and don't be wrong, there is some basis to that, considering his life prior to politics and and he's not the nicest person in the world. But they tried to act as though that this is this is what a real Christian looks like. And they they kept driving that point home over and over and over and over again. And this tweet is a pretty good summary of the kind of Christian that Raphael Warnock actually is. And I, I just love this tweet. So this was right after Easter weekend. The meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you are a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. It's difficult to be wrong that often in such a short amount of time. This guy only has 280 characters to slam face first into religious heresy, and he does it. It's incredible how they could do this. Now, if it were Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I'd still laugh. It's still funny, but I expect it from them because that's what i've come to expect from them they don't know anything about religion they they try to wheel it out every now and then when they think that religion actually teaches something that would be beneficial to their cause or might convince people to go along with their political narrative and then they throw it back into the closet the second anybody mentions anything that might be inconvenient for them politically like they, they never want to talk bible and say you're a bad person for talking about the bible when it comes to things like for example gay marriage, or transgenderism. They, they No Bible allowed then, but then whenever it comes to something that they think, doesn't mean it does, but they think religion is on their side when it comes to things like welfare. They say that, well, the Bible talks about taking care of the poor, so let's, let's pull the Bible out now because it, right now it fits the political agenda. Raphael Warnock is kind of trying to do the same thing, even though he's making a more general statement. But ultimately... This thing is obviously theologically incorrect. I don't have to go into great detail about that. Anybody that's been a Christian for more than like two seconds knows that this is wrought with Christian heresy. First of all, you can't save yourself. I mean, he literally says through helping others, good works, we save ourselves. Um, Have have you read Galatians? (laughs) Have have you read the Gospels? Have you read Ephesians? Works-based salvation is not a thing. You can't work to save yourself. In fact, this is a a predominant theme of the book of Hebrews. This is all throughout the New Testament, but it's especially put on display in Galatians and Hebrews. The whole point of it is saying, no, we couldn't save ourselves. If we could save ourselves, we didn't need a savior. The whole reason Jesus came is because we can't do that. I mean, it would be like, Um, the lifeguard swimming out to wherever you are in the pool while you're drowning and be like, no, no, I'm good, and just swimming back to shore. Okay, well, then you didn't need the lifeguard. The lifeguard being there was completely pointless. There's no reason for that person to swim out to save you if you're perfectly capable of saving yourself. And so, obviously, it's theologically stupid. And the other side of that, of course, is that Easter is for people that are not Christian. The resurrection of Christ is for non- No, that's not how that works. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Anybody that comes by a different way, anybody that tries to get into where the sheep are, by any way other than me, he is a thief and a robber, and he will be cast out into utter darkness. I mean, you could quote scripture all day long talking about Christianity's exclusivity. And so he, he's wrong on that point. He's wrong on the, the one that we just talked about, about saving yourself through your works. And, and the fact that we need a savior is personified by the fact that we're incapable of saving ourselves and that we cannot work our way into heaven. And that's true of Christians or non-Christians. But a lot of people would probably look at this and do exactly what they would do with somebody like Nancy Pelosi, like AOC, like Joe Biden or other people that pretend to be religious when it suits them and then pretend not to be when it's not. I don't think that this is the same case, and it's partly because this guy is a minister. It is not humanly possible for somebody that has supposedly been trained in scripture to have missed this. It's just not. Because it's such a basic fundamental thing to know about the faith that it's not possible for you to have missed it. You can misunderstand it, you can interpret it wrongly, but you can't miss it. You can try to wire work your way around it, but you can't not know about it. Not if you've been trained in this. I mean, that would be as basic as any principle you could come from any other ideology. It would be like saying, well, yeah, I mean, he's uh, been a, a lawyer for 15 years and you know, went through law school, got a couple of law degrees, um, but he's never heard of the First Amendment. No, that that's not how that works, at least not in Amer if if you're an American lawyer. You you can't do that. And so this is what is going on here. I don't think that uh Raphael Warnock it is even possible for him to have been trained in ministering without knowing that it is impossible to work yourself into salvation, especially considering how The scripture alludes to this over and over and over and over and over again. This isn't like just some obscure verse in the Minor Prophets. This is the fundamental foundation of why we have a Savior in the first place. And so here's what's actually going on. It's not that Raphael Warnock has missed this. It's that he is intentionally not believing in it. Because Raphael Warnock, and and this has been proven time and time again, if if you read his words, you see the things that he says about America, the things that he says about religion. His religion is leftism. I've been saying this for years. Leftism is not a political ideology. It is a rival religion. It is an alternative to the Christian worldview. You must change everything about your belief system in order to be able to look at a guy like Caitlyn Jenner and say, nope, that's a woman. Not just he appears to be a woman, not just he dresses like a woman, that is literally a woman. You can't get there if you have any semblance of objective morality or truth. And that's what leftism is. It demands that you give that up in order to succumb to and, and in order to be in line with that religion. It's an alternative worldview. It affects every aspect of your belief system. And with Raphael Warnock, this is no different. You see, the preaching of the gospel, which is the exclusivity of Jesus, means that a tenet of his real religion, leftism, was violated. Because one of the chief moral teachings of leftism is plurality that everybody's okay, that everybody can be saved. It doesn't really matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter if you pray to God or Allah or one of the Hindu gods or the moon or whatever else you want to pray to. As long as you feel it really sincerely in your heart, then, yeah, you can be saved. And, again, that's it's about doing something. It's about feeling something in your heart and just generally being a good person. And, by the way, if we were to extrapolate this from what Raphael Warnock actually meant, he probably means voting Democrat when he says helping people because – You know, leftists don't believe in individual charity. They believe in collective charity. But anyway, not going to go to that point because we don't really have to for this. The point is when a moral teaching of Christianity, which is the exclusivity of Jesus, that he alone is God and you will worship no other gods other than him, came into conflict with – but you know, what about Muslims and Hindus and and everybody else and Jews that don't accept Christ as the Messiah – you know, that are religiously Jewish and believe we're still under the Old Testament or atheist or everybody else. Well, what happens to those people? Well, in leftism, they, you know, their gods are just as good as Jesus and anybody else. And so the resurrection is really for everybody because none of this stuff matters. See, that's the value system of somebody on the left. And when Raphael Warnock's belief system of leftism came into conflict with a moral teaching of Christianity, leftism won out because that's his real religion. And this ultimately goes back to the idea behind leftism in general. Because it is a rival religion, what is it? It's paganism. Paganism was inherently pluralistic. I actually somewhat alluded to this point in the interview I just did with Jeremy. Pagans didn't believe that the God of heaven was not really there. They didn't believe, oh, Baal is the one true God and God's not really They believed that Baal was real, and God was real, and uh, Molech was real, and all the other gods were real too. They just believed they were all out there, and, and you could be very pluralistic in that way. When somebody came up and believed in a different god, you might believe that your god is better, and that your god trumps their god, but you didn't believe that his god didn't exist. And you didn't believe that he couldn't be saved by his god. That's how pagans thought and leftism is the new paganism. A lot of people think a lot of this progressivism stuff and the socialism stuff is new and it's a, it's a nuanced, novel idea. No, it's the same thing that Satan's been teaching, uh, tempting people with forever. It's the idea that we can make God in our image. And that's exactly what Raphael Warnock believes because he wants to you know be pluralistic, which is what his church, leftism, preaches. And so he gave up because, again... In a tribalist idea, your god does trump their god, but their god still exists. He believes probably that Christ rose, and, and I assume that he believes that Easter is something that you should celebrate, and that is a secondary religion to him, just like many people in Athens. Their chief god was Athena, but they'd worship Zeus every now and then. They'd they'd worship Hera every now and then. They'd worship Achilles, or sorry, not Achilles, <laughs> Apollo, or or one of the other Greek gods. Uh, they weren't, you know against worshiping other gods. They just, you know, liked Athena. That was their main god, and if Athena said something and the other gods said something else, whatever Athena said trumped that because that's their favorite god. Well, to Raphael Warnock, it's the same thing. Leftism is his favorite god, but he also does kind of believe in Jesus and, and the god of the Bible and whatever, and so it's just whenever they come in conflict, leftism is the one that wins out in his mind. These people are nothing but Old Testament pagans. They've got a, a shiny new coat of paint, and they may claim that they are atheistic, a lot of them. Obviously, Warnock doesn't, but they may claim that they are atheistic or secular or have moved past that. But the truth is they're living in the same paganist system that we had back in Old Testament times. And another great example of this actually comes from uh, another Democrat who will take a look at what she wrote. This is in a New York Times best-selling book. Uh, from someone named, I believe it's Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, and she's a, you know, has has her doctorate in something, a doctor of jelly beans or something, I have no idea. But anyway, so this is what she wrote, and remember, this is in a New York Times best-selling book. Dear God, this is a prayer that she's teaching people to, to pray. Dear God, please help me to hate white people, or at least to want to hate them. At least I want to stop caring about them individually and collectively. I want to stop caring about their misguided racist souls to stop believing that they can be better and that they can stop being racist. All right, so first of all, easy Lippmann's test here. If you're ever wondering, hmm, is that thing a racist thing to say? All you have to do is switch the race and see if it sounds racist then. Do you think that anybody would be accepting of someone that goes, Dear God, please help me to hate black people, or, you know, just want to hate black people. That's really what I'm trying to get at. Even, even if I don't really hate black people, just help me want to hate them. It's one of the most absurd, racist things I've ever heard, but this is where they have moved. Because here's the thing, if you are in the church of leftism, you have to remember, they redefine the terms all the time. White has now become synonymous with evil. And of course, a good Christian hates evil. They abhor evil. That is something that is foreign and they don't want any association with that. That's a good Christian ethic. The problem is that leftism has completely redefined evil to just mean, well, white. If something bad happens, it's it's because of white people. It's because of racism. They're literally even doing this with people. Because Asians are prospering in America despite being minorities, despite having... Uh, had racial tensions between them and white people in the past. I mean, we interned Japanese Americans, for Pete's sake, as, as recently as World War II. But despite all of that, they're doing very well in America. And because of that, they're saying, you no, know, no, they're, they're really white. Uh, you, you have Hispanic people that say, well, they're, they're white passing, and they only say that to conservatives. They say to people like Clarence Thomas or uh, Ben Carson that they're, they're an Uncle Tom. They're really a white man. I, I've read this in countless op-eds from the left, because in their mind, all white means is bad. And so if it's a black person they disagree with, well, that's really a white person. Again, racism and or whiteness has just become a synonym for anything politically that I don't like or disagree with. And again, this goes back to the idea that she, when her ideas that pertain to God, which is there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free for all or one in Christ Jesus, when that comes in conflict with the ethos, the ethics of leftism, which is white people are bad, that's the one that wins out. That's her top god. She picks that god over the actual god, just like Raphael Warnock did. Um, I, I really thought this quote was something as well. Check this out. This is uh, further down in that same article by uh, Disern. The self-proclaimed theologian went on to claim, talking about the woman that wrote this, Her prayer was intended, quote, to be true to the biblical mandate of peace, justice, and reconciliation, even though she said she did not think such a thing in the end was possible. So again, this is a, a time where the worldview of leftism, her true religion, is in conflict with the worldview of Christianity, because at the core of Christianity is the idea that salvation and reconciliation are always possible, God came here in the flesh in the form of Jesus Christ to build a bridge to reconcile mankind to God through him. That was the whole purpose of his mission. And he believes that everyone can be saved. He said that in 1 Corinthians that there will never come a temptation that is too strong for you to uh, overcome. And that, that goes for everybody. It says that he desires for all men to repent everywhere and that none should perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Everybody has the opportunity to repent of their sins and be reconciled to their God. Reconciliation of every person is one of the the parts of the worldview. It is the foundation of Christianity. You have to believe that in order to believe that Christ came here for a reason. And yet she throws all that away as like, yeah, reconciliation, I don't really believe it's even possible or whatever. I mean, yeah, that's kind of what I was writing that to get to. I don't understand how you can be like, God, I really hope that you help me hate white people so that I can be reconciled to them. That doesn't make any sense at all. But if even ignoring the fact that there's zero logic to that whatsoever, let's just ignore that for the moment and look at the claim of not believing in reconciliation. It's not possible to be a Christian and not believe in reconciliation that you don't believe that they're even capable of repenting or to come back to God or or come back. Because let's just say that being white was evil. You're going to stop being white? Can't do that. I I don't care what they tell you. I don't care what you identify as. You can't just stop being white. Just like black people can't stop being black. It's not possible. Clarence Thomas, regardless of what people say, regardless of the ugly names people on the left call him, he is a black man. He's always been a black man. He's always going to be a black man. And so that's the way that this works. But ultimately, if the sin is being white, well, you can't be washed of that sin because you'll always be white. And so within their own crazy, mixed up paganistic worldview, what she's saying actually does make sense. Scary as that may be. But as I've said, these people are just modern day pagans. Their church, the church of leftism, is their primary church. And whenever their beliefs in Christianity, or at least their version of it, comes into conflict with that, well, Christianity has to take a back seat because the most important thing is that I am sufficiently woke and engaged in the church of Leftism. That's their real religion. So, our second Daily Dose of Stupid for the day, our Daily Dose of Stupid, is from Joe Biden, who announces that there are going to be more measures when it comes to gun control. Yay! Anyway, he signed an executive order earlier this week that would ban ghost guns. Now, ghost guns is a scary name that people made up to make guns sound scarier than they actually are. What an actual ghost gun is, or at least that's the, this is what they call it, is a gun that was made in a person's house or made outside of a corporation. Now, here's the silly thing about this. I thought that leftists didn't like corporations. I thought that they did not want corporations to have more rights than other people. We heard this in Citizens United. They said, well, a a corporation should not have more power and more rights than a person, more than an individual. Which, by the way, on some level I actually do agree with. I think that a corporation ought to have the same rights as an individual person. But why is it that they abandon that belief when it comes to making guns? They think only a corporation should have the right to make and keep and bear arms? They think that only corporations should be able to manufacture guns. Wasn't that giving all of the power to the corporations? Now, the truth is that they do want that. They want gun companies which they can, can control and can regulate to be able to make guns for them to arm the police officers and people in the military to enforce their will on the American people. And I know that most people in our military and police officers are good people that would not do that. I'm just saying that that's ideally what they would like because... Of course, all socialism is coercion, it's all force, and it requires a complacent military and or police force in able to enact it. But nonetheless, they do want guns, they just want them in the hands of certain people. And the only way that they can do that is if they control all of them and only they get to say who can and cannot make a gun. That's why they like the idea of there being a rule against this. But it violates their stated principle of, well, a corporation shouldn't have more rights than a person. Okay, if you're saying that only a corporation has the right to make something, but if a private individual makes it, then it's illegal? Then what are we doing here? Because if that's the case, you're breaking your own law. (laughs) If if that's the case, you're breaking your own stated value that corporations should not have more power than individuals. Well, I'm sorry if you think that only corporations should be allowed to make guns— which would give them quite a bit of power, then yeah, you, you don't believe that. I'm sorry. And I know that somebody in the comment section is going to come back with, well, what about moonshine? No, actually, I'm against moonshine laws. I think if a person wants to make their own alcohol, that's their business. Kind of hard to pin a libertarian to the wall on that one. But anyway, <laughs> um, that that really is how they think of it. And they will see... Here's what it's actually going to. This is the purpose of this law. It is about control, and they do want to make sure that the private citizen is incapable of creating a weapon to defend himself because then they get to regulate all of the guns and they get to regulate whether or not you have a firearm uh, firearm or not. But they will soon be coming after gun assemblies. So there's certain rifles and, and platforms that you can buy that you can buy them in parts and assemble the rifle yourself. You don't buy the whole gun as a unit. You will buy the individual parts. And, by the way, this does take some skill to do, but it's it's not terribly complicated, especially in our modern world with, with mass-produced parts. You can, if you're relatively competent, buy the parts of an AR-15 slowly over time and assemble it, and it would be more difficult to trace back to you because you didn't have to go through a background check in order to obtain that since you built it yourself. So i I really don't have a problem with that because here's the thing do do we know of any kind of crime where this is an issue because first of all we know that the vast majority of guns that are are used in crimes i mean it's it's more than two to one compared to all other guns is handguns and handguns you can't really do that with i mean I guess you could theoretically buy the individual parts but Really, most of them aren't for sale. It would be very difficult to assemble your own handgun by yourself. And so that knocks out most of gun crime. But to my knowledge, I've never even heard of a case of a mass shooter or even gang violence resulting from somebody who was making guns. Some have been illegally modified, but as far as just straight up making a gun... I don't know of any cases of that. There are probably some out there, but they're so minuscule that I've never even heard of them before. And so this does nothing to help solve gun violence, does nothing to help prevent mass shootings. I don't know if there's ever been a mass shooting in the history of this country that was committed with a ghost gun, but nonetheless, this is what they push forward. And then Joe Biden, when he's announcing his new gun control measures I mean, as to be expected, he kind of falls all over himself. Take a listen. Nothing, nothing
3: I'm about to recommend in any way impinges on the Second Amendment. Oh, I bet it's going there to be. phony arguments suggesting that these are Second Amendment rights at stake from what we're talking about.
0: Are they? But no amendment, no amendment to the Constitution is absolute. <laughs> you can't yell crowd. You can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. We call it freedom of speech. From the very beginning, you couldn't own any weapon you wanted to own.
3: From the very beginning, the
0: Second Amendment existed. Certain people weren't allowed to have weapons. Also not. So true. the
3: idea is just bizarre to suggest that some of the things we're recommending are contrary to the Constitution.
1: Uh,
0: it, It takes, I've said this a thousand times, it takes talent to be wrong that much in such a short amount of time. Like it, it's actually impressive that you can be that wrong that many different times in only about a 45 second clip. So first of all, let's deal with the big and most obvious one when he says that all amendments, you know, the amendments are not absolute. Yeah, they are. That's what an alienable means. If a right is an unalienable right, which is what our Declaration of Independence says about human rights and God-given rights, then that means they cannot be taken away. That's about as absolute as it gets. That means that nobody has the right to infringe upon them. That means that you yourself can't even infringe upon your own rights. I mean, you can't get rid of them, per se. You could choose not to exercise them, I suppose, but you can't, like, you can't Um, give up, for example your right to free speech it's inherent, it is inborn you can't do anything to change it you can choose not to exercise it but you cannot eliminate it from your being and the second amendment is no exception to this the rights and the amendments are absolute. That's what it means to be inalienable. That's what it means to believe in God-given rights. Now, the Democrats, of course, do not believe in this, but that's the point. It's showing the distinction between the two. They believe that your rights are really just kind of uh, guidelines. Maybe we should hang on to them, but yeah, let's make some exceptions because it's not like you know they're absolute or in concrete or anything. No, no they are. That's the point of it being a right. A right is something that nobody had to give you. You were given to it by God, and no man has the right to take it from you. That's about as absolute a concept as it gets. You can no more stop having a right to free speech than you could stop being a human being. That's not something that you are capable of doing. And it's not something that the government government should recognize those rights and protect them. But even if they infringe upon them, they cannot remove them from you. And that is really... At the end of the day, that is what is un- the most important thing that he says here, but Joe Biden does not believe you have rights. He does not believe your rights are inherent. He does not believe they come from God. The left believes that rights come from government, and because government gave you those rights, they have the right to take them away at any time they want. And that's exactly what they plan on doing. If he didn't believe that, he wouldn't be doing this. And I love that. That brings me to my my second sort of observation here. I love how he goes on this things like, it's uh it's not a pudding it's not a second amendment violation uh the i uh, the idea that this is a second amendment of violation is is ridiculous and it's phony it's a phony argument also no right is absolute come on man i'm like wait but you just said that what you say this isn't a violation of the Second Amendment, and then you go on to make the case that, but if we do violate the Second Amendment, it's okay, because it's not an absolute, right? Why the need to say that this is not going to impede the Second Amendment, that this is not a violation of the Second Amendment, and then say, but it's not like the amendment is absolute? That that, that makes no sense. It, it would be like me saying, okay, what I'm about to say isn't a violation of Scripture, um. But, you know, it's not like scripture is set in stone or anything. Well, I, I would have no need to make the second case if the first case were true. And I would have no need to make the second case if the first case were true. I'm not saying that they're contradictory. I'm saying that if he really believed that this was not a violation of the Second Amendment, he wouldn't have had to say, by the way, this is not a violation of the Second Amendment. Oh, and also, even if I do violate the Second Amendment, it's cool because it's not like, you know, they're absolutes or anything. Y- There's no need to say both of those things. The truth is, it is a violation of the Second Amendment, and he knows that, which is the reason that he hedges his language. And ultimately, I love that he uses this old, tired argument that's one of the dumbest arguments you can make. Well, the First Amendment is an absolute because you're not allowed to yell fire in a crowded theater. Uh, Not true. You are allowed to yell fire in a crowded theater. When there's a fire. You see, when there's a fire, yelling fire in a crowded theater is not only allowed, it's a good thing to do. When you yell fire in a crowded theater and there's no fire, what you are being prosecuted on is not the fact that you said the word fire or that you exercised your free speech. It's saying that free speech cannot be used as a shield to allow you to incite a riot. In the same way that you're not allowed to incite a riot using other terms like, you know, funny man did in in Birmingham saying we need to tear some bleep down. You're not allowed to use free speech as a shield against committing another crime. If, for example, I hire a hitman and all I told him is I'll pay you X amount of dollars if you kill this person for me and then they go out and murder that person, I can't say, oh, well, free speech. I didn't actually go out and kill the person. They're not prosecuting your speech moron. They're prosecuting the action that you use to hurt another person. The speech is not what is under fire here. And so that's not a loophole or an exception to the First Amendment. It's just saying you can't use the First Amendment to justify committing other crimes. (laughs) Like, you can't use that as a shield. In the same way that you couldn't just run up to a random person, shoot them in the face, and go like, I have a right to keep and bear arms. You have a right to keep and bear them. That doesn't give you the right to murder people. You can't you can't commit crimes, and then use the amendments as shields. That's not what's going on here. He's saying that your right to have the thing in the first place should be curtailed. That's completely different than what Joe Biden is suggesting here when it comes to gun control. And it's I, I hate that stupid fire in a crowded theater argument because it's so easily broken, and yet people continue to use it over and over again as though it's a good argument uh but also another thing that he said he said well you know back at the, the time of the founding it's not like people um could could just have any weapon they wanted um yeah pretty much they could uh let's observe this first of all that we often hear this talking point from the left they say that well the first amendment was only supposed to be used for things like muskets because that was the standard weapon of the day yeah the revolutionary war was fought with muskets, which means that all the people that owned muskets had military equipment. And so if we are going to make that analogous to today, if we were going to enact the same rules and the same standard that we had back then, then everybody should be allowed to have an M16 rifle. Now those are illegal in the United States of America unless you are literally a a millionaire and can afford the thousands upon thousands of dollars it takes to get an automatic weapons license to be able to own an m16 but my point in all of that is if the standard is going to be we need to bring it back to the way it was when this thing was written and ratified in the 1790s um if that's the standard we're going with then everybody needs to have military grade equipment but but let's take you know our mind off of the musket here for a second they act as though there were not more powerful weapons in existence and that those weapons would have been banned by the founders. The only problem is that is simply not the case. I want you to take a look at these weapons. These are all from the 1790s. These uh, were all weapons that were had been made and manufactured and invented pre-existing the 1790s. And yes, private citizens in the United States owned them. I don't know for a fact if any American owned a puckle gun. I, I can't imagine there weren't at least one or two people that had one, but the rest of them certainly were. So the first one you have up there um, on the left is the Belton flint, Flintlock. It could fire 12 shots. It was a Flintlock uh, style musket, yes, but it could fire multiple shots without having to reload. Uh, you have the Girardoni air rifle there on the bottom right, uh, j- directly across from that. That one could fire 20 shots in a very short amount of time. Then on the left, you've got the thing that looks like something out of a fantasy with all the different barrels on it. That's called a pepper box pistol. And uh, that was also something available to the founders. And, and there were people that owned them even in the Revolutionary War and, and in the Army and, and people that were not in the Army. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the puckle gun up there on the top right. And that, you know, that was sort of the precursor to the machine gun. Now, it took a lot longer to fire a second shot than a machine gun. But the point is, you could fire off about nine shots in a minute. That was significantly faster than a musket. And yet, despite all of this, do you know how many of those were outlawed at the time of the Constitution? None of them. Not one. In fact, Lewis and Clark carried the Ghirardoni air rifle. This was something that Thomas Jefferson was kind of an enthusiast about, and not only allowed them to have them, he was enthusiastic about them having them. He's like, yeah, take one of them. This is something that People, they they lie to you because they know that their argument cannot stand on its own. And I also ask you to consider this and, and this idea that, oh, well, not just anybody could own a weapon and you weren't allowed to own any weapon that you wanted. I want you to consider this as well. This is a letter of marquee from James Madison, you know, the guy that wrote the Bill of Rights. This is a letter of marquee from James Madison when there was a private company not a government contractor or anything like that, a private company that kept getting their stuff stolen from England because this happened in 1812. And they were asking him, hey, do do we have permission to actually, you know, have cannons on our ship? Because I know we're not a government ship. And he's like, yeah, you can have a warship if you want to. We have a Second Amendment. That letter of marquee was specifically given to them saying, yeah, you, you can have that, that's fine. And in fact, he said it, the the letter was actually not to give permission for the cannons, because they already had that. The letter was to give them commission, and I love this, basically to say that they are allowed to fire upon enemy ships if they come in contact with them, and they are allowed to either sink them or to bring those people into custody. So he said, not only are you allowed to have military-grade cannons on your ship, but I'm also saying that you have my permission, even as private citizens, to basically Uh, take war criminals and uh, engage in a citizen's arrest of enemy combatants in the water. And so there's no question when it comes to this, that the founders absolutely, when they thought about the second amendment, they believed that that is something that was extended to private citizens, including military grade equipment. So Joe Biden is simply incorrect on that, just like he was on everything else. And finally he said, well, not just any citizen, Could own a firearm. Uh, Yeah, they could. They could. There, There was nobody that was specifically barred from owning a firearm at the time of the founding. The founders didn't believe in that. Now, there were people that were, for example, incarcerated for crimes of violence that weren't allowed to have them, but that's also true today. His law would not change that. If somebody has shown that they have been irresponsible with, the right to keep and bear arms, then those arms can be taken away from those. Those rights can be curtailed based on their actions. What Joe Biden is suggesting is new laws that would, uh, would be sweeping and apply to every citizen whether they've done anything wrong or not. The founders did have certain people that were in prisons that weren't allowed to have firearms, but that's because they had already violated their own rights. They had already violated the rights of another person and thus had to have their rights curtailed. That's not what Joe Biden is suggesting here. And so the idea that, well, not just anybody could have one. Uh, Yeah, unless they committed a crime, anybody could have a firearm back then. And many of them made their own, the ghost guns that Joe Biden is so afraid of and now trying to come up with legislation to prevent that from happening. And if you don't believe me on this, All you need to do is go to the words of George Mason, who was known as the father of the Bill of Rights, statesman from Virginia. He said that when someone asked him, who is the militia, referring to the Second Amendment, he said, the militia is the whole of the people. Private citizens, everybody's the militia. Every American citizen is the militia. And so that was George Mason's stance on it. He was kind of important to the Bill of Rights being written. And so, yeah, anybody... The whole of the American people, according to George Mason, were allowed to have these firearms. Here's the thing. The reason that Joe Biden, because I just went over in that very short clip, maybe 45 seconds, every word out of the man's mouth was a lie, every single one. And the reason that it was all a lie is because he knows if he tells you the truth, he can't make his case. He knows if he is honest with the American people and he gives proper context and actually explains this thing in a rational way, he knows he will not be able to make the case to get the legislation that he wants. That is why he has to lie, because leftist talking points don't make sense unless you lie about them. And that's especially true with the Second Amendment. All I do is give you the facts. Why? Because I'm confident in my case. I'm confident that you are smart enough. That when you see the facts presented before you, that you can make your own decisions and your own conclusions, and because I know my argument is good and strong, I don't have to worry about it. I can tell you the truth, let the chips fall where they may, and have confidence they will fall in my favor. Joe Biden knows that if he makes this case honestly, his case won't make any sense, so he has to lie about it. And that's ultimately where all of this goes. Let's go to the chaplain's report. All right, and our chaplain's report for today does come from the book of 1 Samuel. Yes, that's right. We are getting back into our series on 1 Samuel. I know we kind of took a hiatus from it for a little bit, but we are back in 1 Samuel. And the only piece of context you really need to know for this is this is in the time where uh, David is fleeing Saul at this point. So let's go ahead and look at that. This is 1 Samuel 12, or sorry, First Samuel 21, verses 4 through 6. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread if only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Be assured, women have been denied us as previously when I left at the bodies of the young men were consecrated, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more then will their bodies be consecrated today? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there except for the bread of the presence, which was removed from its place before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day it was taken away. So, you know the context. This is when David is fleeing Saul, and he comes across a temple. He and his men are hungry. They've been running and, and been trying to escape Saul for a long time now. They got nothing to eat. And so they go to the temple and they ask, hey, do you have any food around? Can you feed us? And the priests say, all we got is consecrated bread. All we have is the bread that is supposed to be given to us. It is supposed to be set apart and the priests are supposed to be the ones that eat it. And they said, but we'll let you have it as long as you have been away from women. Basically, what he's saying is, as long as the men are pure and clean, and they are not unclean, whether they, you know, that would have been being with a woman or having um, having been around a dead body, any of those things that would have defiled them, according to the law of Moses. And so I find this interesting because this is a example of David kind of breaking the law, and and not necessarily doing what God would have wanted, which is bizarre that a Bible hero and a man that is uh, after God's own heart would be asking for this thing to be done for him. And this is something that I've thought about a lot because Jesus, you remember, actually refers to this little episode in Samuel where he and his disciples are snacking on wheat on the Sabbath day. And they said, why are you engaging in labor? Why are you gathering grain basically on the Sabbath? Even though all they were doing is like just reaching down and grabbing it. They weren't even like, you know milling it or anything like that they were just snacking because they were hungry and so they ask him about that and jesus says have you not read that when jesus when david was tired and fleeing from saul that he ate the bread that was unlawful for him to eat and so this is jesus actually acknowledging that this is something that was unlawful at least according to the law of moses for him to do and that's something that you know bothers me and and has been a real struggle for me understanding this it's kind of a weird episode in god's word so I guess that brings me to the question, why was it okay for David to eat this bread? Well, I think there's a couple of possible explanations, and I'm not sure that I even really have a good answer for this. But one is that the priest offered it freely. Because the purpose of the consecrated bread was for the people to sacrifice to God something. Because some sacrifices were animals, some were things like wine and drink offerings, and then there were also offerings of bread. And remember that the Levites, they devoted themselves to temple worship. And because of that, they couldn't farm and ranch and do everything that other people did to make gain. And so there had to be a way for them to live and eat and survive as well. And so the way that that happened is there was a portion of the sacrifices given to God, given to the people working at the temple, the Levites, in order to sustain them. And that's the bread that they had on hand. And... There is a prohibition for people that are not Levites doing this for exactly that reason, because they don't want the sacrifices of God going to other people that was supposed to be set aside for the Levites to be able to have and to sustain them. But the priest did offer it. It was his bread by right, and he chose to give it away. In the same way, it would be wrong For if I have a sandwich, somebody just walk up and take my sandwich. That would be a sin, right? That would be stealing. But if I offer it to somebody, even though it's not theirs per se, and it would be not lawful for them to have that sandwich, if I give it to them, then it's different. And I think that's one possible explanation here. That because the priest offered it, even though it was his by law, he was able to say, okay, yeah, I know it's mine and I have a right to it, but I'm going to convey it to somebody else anyway. I think that, that might have been a factor, because you notice David doesn't even ask specifically for the consecrated bread. The Levite here offers it to him. And even so, even though the, there was a, a transference of who had the right to it, you'll notice that even then, the priest had regulations. He had conditions placed upon it. He's like, okay, I, I know I'm giving you the bread, but this is consecrated bread. This is God's bread. You can't eat this bread unless you guys have kept yourselves clean and you are not unclean before God. And this was a big thing in the law of Moses. And so I find that really interesting that even though the priest does offer it and even though the priest is kind of bending the rules here for David, he says, okay, but but this is holy bread. You you guys can't just have it no matter what. Like There, there are conditions to be met. You must come before God in a holy and clean manner before you can partake of the bread, even though I'm giving it to you freely. And so that's really interesting to me, that just like us, if we're going to have something from God, it's a free gift, and God is giving it to us of his own generosity and goodwill, but there's still an expectation for us to keep ourselves holy and clean for him in that process, that it's not just an unconditional thing, that there are things that God expects from us when it comes to this. And... I think that ultimately what was the reason for that, the the rationale for the priest saying that, is he understood that whether he was eating the bread or whether somebody else was eating the bread, it was God's bread, it wasn't his bread. Even if it had just been a normal day, David hadn't come by, his men hadn't come by, and he was going to eat the consecrated bread himself, even if that episode had taken place, it would have been God's bread then too. It wouldn't really have been his. And I think that's just a, a great way to look at it. Because as Christians, we're sometimes given stewardship over certain things. There are certain things that God has blessed us with or given to us to take care of, and we need to acknowledge that ultimately all things are God's in the end. Whether it's the money that we get from our, our jobs, whether it's our possessions, our cars, our apartments, our houses, uh, whether it's some of the material blessings that are even more frivolous, like our TVs or our, our you know, computers or things like that, or it's something like children. These are all things that God has given to us for a time, for a specific purpose, but ultimately we're supposed to acknowledge that they're all his anyway. And because of that, there are conditions and expectations that come with that, just like the consecrated bread. And so that's a a reality that I think that this story is trying to convey. And that may also be the second reason that I think it may have been okay for David to have partaken of this bread, which is... It's because it was God's bread. And what does God do? He feeds the hungry. That's part of the intended purpose of God's bread and and everything else, is He uses the things that are His to give to His children and care for His people when they're in need. And that may have been the rationale that the, the Levite uses here too, I don't know. But it kind of seems like that would be a good answer because it coincides with what Jesus says about this episode later on, which is, if there are people that are hungry, if there are people that need something, do you really think that God would rather those people go without? Or do you think that those, that those people really do need uh, to be provided for by God? And, and I think that he was saying that, look, the, the bread's already there. God has already provided and so it's incumbent for us to uh, adhere to the regulations and expectations that god has for us but at the same time ultimately the purpose of this being given to god is to do god's work and feeding the hungry is part of that work and so i think that that might have been some of the rationale i don't again like i said at the beginning of, i don't know that i have a really good answer i don't know that i can conclusively say this is why it was permissible because I don't know that the Bible really provides that, and and maybe that's intentional. I I wish that I had a better answer, but I'm not sure that I really do. Uh, And then finally, the the last little point that I want to make, and this is really almost more of a passing thought, but I think it ties into the bread thing. Why is it that sex was the the deal-breaker here? Why was he saying, no, you, you have to have stayed away from women to eat this bread? Now, again... What he was suggesting here is he was not insinuating that they would have done anything else unclean, but he was saying that's really the only thing that we suspect your men might have been engaged in that would make them unclean. Because I doubt that that priest is looking at them and thinking that they've been around a lot of dead bodies or anything like that. And so that's the only thing that he suspects might have made them unclean. I think that he could have just as easily said, well, you can't have been with any women or had leprosy or been around that or, 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 you know, having recently gone through a circumcision, which, of course, all of his men would have been circumcised as babies, being Jewish. Uh, so he couldn't, he couldn't have said any of those things. But, you know, sleeping with their wives would have been the first thing that he thought of. And so let's look at that for a second. Why is that the thing that would have made them unclean, even though it was something that would have been acceptable to God and within the bonds of marriage, that even sex, when used correctly— and even when it's it's something that God would approve of and God would be okay with within the bonds of marriage, that sometimes it's a good idea to abstain from that or any other fleshly desire in order to be holy before him and in order to strengthen yourself spiritually. That's what fasting is, isn't it? When we fast, we forego our needs and desires for food for a time to be able to spiritually focus ourselves. And some people it works great for, some people they don't really see the need to, and that's not really something that's required. But there is an acknowledgement by Scripture that sometimes giving up our physical wants and our physical needs in order to center ourselves spiritually is a good tactic to grow closer to God. Uh, 1 Corinthians, for example, mentions that there were couples that would abstain from being with one another, and these are married couples, for a time in order to grow spiritually, and then would reconnect. And Paul actually advises them not to abstain from sex for too long, you know, lest they they create a spiritual problem for themselves and, and you know, might accidentally lust. And so the the Bible acknowledges our need for this. It acknowledges that we have a desire for it, and it actually even says, Weirdly enough, in some uh, scenarios suggest that we need to engage in it in order to keep temptation at bay. But it does also emphasize here that there are also times to forego it in order to focus on our spiritual bodies and our spiritual capacity and try to uh, get in a more spiritual mindset rather than worrying on our physical one. And so that's something that I find, uh, I find very interesting about this little episode. But I think If we were to tie a bow on all this, sometimes it's important to realize that not even a great need outweighs God's law, but sometimes a great need does call on God's people to share what they've been blessed with, that even if they have the right to it, that they can give of themselves willingly, and isn't that exactly what Christ did to give of himself? that even though he had the right to take up his own life, even though he had the right to say, no, I don't want to die for everybody else, it's, it's not fair and I don't want to do it, that he chose to give of himself anyway. And that's the kind of savior that we have, a savior that is often referred to himself as the bread of life. Stay the course, friends.
2: Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Reda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.